0: We're going to build the template of what this cohort, this sort of ca- this band of misfits sees themselves because we see ourselves as beautiful and we see ourselves as creative and we see ourselves as luxurious, right? And we see ourselves as daring and interesting. And if they're not going to say that we are, we're going to say that we are.
1: Welcome to the idea generation podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan Bever and each week I get to talk with some of the most innovative ideators in culture and try to figure out how they make their creative decisions. I've been doing idea generation for three seasons now, and during that time, I've interviewed a number of people I've shared creative circles with artists like alchemist and just blaze and executives like scooter Braun and Steven Victor, there are even a handful of guests who I feel privileged enough to call good friends. But there's no one that I've spoken to for Idea Generation so far that I've worked with more closely than this week's guest. I first met Mark Echo in 2005, standing, believe it or not, at adjacent urinals in the complex office. I'd just been hired as an editor at the magazine, and despite having a staff of 500 plus people in the building, Mark took the time to give me an elbow bump and welcome me to the team. Sure, it was a little awkward for me in the moment, but as I would learn, that was just how Mark is. It's hard to overstate just how big Echo Unlimited was at the time. Mark had taken a t-shirt airbrushing business that he started in his garage in high school and turned it into one of the biggest clothing lines in the world. By the time I met him, in addition to Unlimited, he had launched or acquired a suite of brands, including G-Unit, Zoo York, Averex, Cut and Sew, and Echo Red. Not to mention he'd already branched out into video games, and of course publishing, which is where I came in. A year after I joined Complex, Mark and its publisher, Rich Antonello, tapped me to become the editor-in-chief at the ripe old age of 26. Needless to say, this was a life-changing event. And from that vantage, I got to see Mark Echo Enterprises reach its zenith. And then, as marketplace pressures collided with internal tensions and the Great Recession, also, it's unraveling, which, to be honest, was pretty brutal. But, where most would have folded, Mark just piloted as graceful an emergency landing as possible, extricated himself from the business, and took Complex in tow. And from the trenches alongside Rich, myself, and the whole Complex Massive, Mark helped us scale from a bi-monthly magazine to a multifaceted entertainment company, creating and leading initiatives like ComplexCon. In the end, he would also be instrumental in negotiating our nine-figure exit. And then, having done the impossible and done it twice, Mark left the business right around the same time as me, and channeled his endless curiosity into reforming our national education system at Ruslan Ali and Lorraine Powell Jobs's NGOs, XQ and the Emerson Collective. And he's still only at the top of his third act. So yeah, there's no way for me to really articulate how much I admire Mark as a creative, as an entrepreneur, and maybe most importantly, as a man, or how grateful I am for the role that he's played in my life. So please consider this episode of Idea Generation, my effort to express all of that, and to gift our audience with Mark's candor, conviction, and clarity of vision. Tres Generaciones is the tequila for dreamers and doers who persevere against all odds. It's made from 100% blue agave, distilled with water sourced from an ancient aquifer beneath the tequila volcano, and triple distilled for unrivaled smoothness. The brand's been around since 1873, and their demonstrated track record of success is the reason why Tres is eager to champion creatives with perseverance everywhere. So whether you're already at the top of your game or just setting out on your creative voyage, let Tres be your running partner on this journey. Welcome to Idea Generation, Mark.
0: Well, it's good to be here, Noah. It's been a minute. It's been a minute, yes.
1: I have to ask, how did your parents' professional life
0: inform your career ambitions? Oh, there were a huge influence on my career um, because they've really, you know, it's interesting. My, my, my mother uh, studied to be a nurse and then she didn't practice for that long, right, as a, as a nurse because she started having the, the family uh, I have an older sister, Shari. She's six years older. And then I have a twin sister. So, uh, and then my dad practiced pharmacy. He graduated from Rutgers College of Pharmacy, where I ended up going to school. But there was a window in <clears throat> the 80s where you know, the economy being rocky, whatever it was, um, and I think them just getting kind of a midlife itch. I've remembered vividly my parents being very entrepreneurial. Like, even even my mom being the, the sort of homemaker, she always had an entrepreneurial flourish, you know? I mean, it sounds, um, and it's not a trivial thing, because for a lot of people, it's a great gateway into entrepreneurship, but she, I remember her selling Avon, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, it was a um, very 80s. It was 80s. a very 80s thing, you know? Uh, and, um, uh, and then my dad, uh, I don't know, I think just standing on his feet, um, having a you know it was kind of evident that things were hard working at the this is before the emergence of the big cvs's and the walgreens so he was like a company guy at a, a regional pharmacy and i think it just was physically hard just being like the pill counter like it just i guess it eventually caught up to him so he watched my mom go out and get her real estate license in the 80s and i guess he got some fomo or or that created validation for him to try his hand at it. So being in a house where both the parents had a side hustle and like that was very much a part of um, the conversation in the house, right? Uh, um, The relationship with their work, uh, our reverence for that, the impact it had on our extracurriculars, whatever, you know, we were me and my twin sister, Marcy, you know, I wouldn't say we were latchkey kids, but effectively we were, we took care of ourselves. You know, come home, took care of yourself and made your food and you know, you had your chores. So I definitely think that that was a profound, had a profound impact as the, the general entrepreneurial like atmosphere they created. You know, it was always in the house. And then when they eventually created their own real estate agency, it was a very 1980s thing, uh, this concept is gonna be very foreign for people watching this, but there was a thing called call forwarding, right? Where where the office lines would ring into the house phone. So uh, in our kitchen, the kitchen was, there was one side of the kitchen that was for the cooking and the prepping and the other side where we were supposed to be eating as a family, but it was basically a desk for my parents. And there was the TV and we'd be in the middle of dinner and And we didn't always sit around like in a sort of nuclear family, like sit around. But we'd be, you know, it was dinner time, doing homework, whatever. Phone would ring, shut off the TV, get quiet. And it's like, you got to put on that. You pick up the phone like you work for me. So like that, that, you know, hello, this is Margot Norton Realty. Can I help you? My mother's name was Margot. My dad's name was Norton. That was the name of their agency. Margot Norton Realty, yeah. Margo, is that you? Margo, this is Mark. You know, it's like, why not? Uh, This is is Mark, you know? So, that was very much a part of uh, the atmosphere and that whole entrepreneurial thing was, um, had a big impact. How did growing up in
1: Lakewood, New Jersey sort of frame your sort of uh, understanding of culture? Sure. And also, how do you think that the role of suburban America is misunderstood in the cultural
0: ecosystem? Those are, those are good, that's a compound question. Good question. What's interesting, funny enough, I think, I think Lakewood's actually pretty interesting. Um, was, I was very lucky to grow up there, right? Uh, I was very lucky. Okay, so we, if we, why? All right, let's zoom out. Um, it's in the 80s. Um, these are the 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 Reagan years Lakewood is unique because it was a uh, and still to this day more so even was sort of a has a very large Orthodox Jewish population so if you know about um, uh, places like Muncie Brooklyn or there's different parts of the country that have these by population very dense um, like Orthodox Jew, Jewish population, um, they, uh, there was this sort of tale of two cities thing that happened in Lakewood. And so in one, you know, route nine, which is the main highway that runs north and south, um, everything, uh, west of route nine was, uh, um, not everything, but largely, uh, middle-class, more of a blend, they weren't a the blend of maybe Christian, Jew, whatever, mixed population. Um, east, very kind of classic story, right? The east lower part, poor, that's where um, more of black and brown folks were, right? On MLK Boulevard, right? And it was interesting that, that that was there, but then there was also this big contingency of like Lubavitch or Jewish, you know, folks. Surrounded by suburbia, okay, like Smallville, right? Okay, Jersey Shore. So you got Howell, Jackson, Point Pleasant, Seaside Heights, largely white, middle class, working middle class. And then this intense orthodoxy, right? Where it was like two cities in one. There was the infrastructure for the public infrastructure, right? Like, you know, that we shared the same hospitals. But then there were Separate shopping for, you know, kosher folks that kept their own retail. And even at the front, there's some parts of you felt like you're in Tel Aviv, you know, like the signage, right, of the the retail stores and the strip malls. You'd be in like, okay, this is for uh, the non-religious portion of town. This is the religious portion. This is the poor portion. So Lakewood was a really unique place. It's a really important insight in terms of impact on me, like huge hugely shaped and so me. when
1: you're going to high school I imagine all of these different places are mixing together and you're getting sort of a flavor from yeah
0: everyone. let's I mean before high school right so here I am uh born Jewish right um, having a twin sister my parents wanted to have um our bar and bat mitzvah together okay and uh, um, What's interesting is that the the way that the the spectrum of not different than the Christian faith in terms of there's a spectrum of orthodoxy right you know from Catholic to let's say Protestant or whatever right and there's, in in Lakewood it showed up so there was the Orthodox there was a the conservative and then there was the Reform we belonged to the conservative right Temple and but girls need to have their bat mitzvah on Friday boys on Saturday morning bar mitzvah ba on sat Friday boys on on Friday we're twins she's five minutes older than me my sister family you know we're very much emerging middle-class um my parents are you know they're they 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 didn't think it'd be fair to Marcy to not have family show up for her Friday night thing Because just statistically that people are gonna come for Saturday right they're working right so can we do it together can we do their ceremony together? They're twins. And um, in the, I just, I don't remember the details explicitly, but I know that my parents took a decision to move from the conservative temple to the reform temple because the reform temple accommodated that, right? Now, this is my first taste of like understanding the nuance of like race and culture because suddenly we went from like the conservative temple to the reform. The, there were Jewish folks that kind of shrugged or, rolled their eyes at like the, the sort of non-Jews that were the less religious reform. so
1: wait, reformed. So reformed is sort of like? More liberal. More liberal, a little more secular in there? Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, there's like um, a choir, okay. you know, instead of a cantor, right? There's a, um, uh, the, you, you, you tend to see female rabbis, right? It's, it's a much more liberal sort of secular thing. Um, so that's one dimension. It was my Jewish identity in a town that was so shaped by, like, it was known as sort of a haven for safe place for, for religious folks. Um, and here we were on the end of the spectrum, not very observant. Okay. Culturally very Jewish, you know, the foods, the sort of family traditions, the way I talk, right. But, um, not... Culture household, right? Not mm. like the observant orthodoxy of like not eating certain things. You know, there was like, you know, shrimp, at like our parties. You know, things like that <laughs> um, that are taboo uh, for some for 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 some Jew, Jews. So there was that dimension. Then there was okay, you're growing up in the '80s. The emergent cultural phenomenon that's tapping our society is this emergence of all the reaction of um, the, the 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 media industry being disintermediated, right? So the the alphabet networks, ABC, CBS. I mean, like we we remember maybe less you. I could, remember. Yeah, but you remember. Mm-hmm. But there's three channels. We, we only had a bunch of like a few channels. Maybe a PBS. Maybe yeah, maybe a PBS. You get Channel Nine. That was like the local thing. WPIX, you know, d- you get WPIX, Channel Eleven, right? Um, so. But suddenly, when when sort of media and the cable truck showed up, right, the the world started to organize in sort of validated space for more niche things. So one of the things that emerged um, uh, was, uh, and it was I think a part of this the the cultural milieu at the time was hip hop. And hip-hop culture was really emerging. And I felt it in my town of Lakewood because it was so diverse. And if you went to the public school systems and you were in your environment there, you were exposed to people that were, th- that was what they were growing up with. And you know, you, and as seventh grader, sixth grader, fifth grader, whatever, you're just kids, you know, you're just, you're into the cultural, you're, you're, you're starting to create your identity, right? You start to think about like, well, what do I wear in a school? And, Mm-hmm. You know, that's the cool kid, or I want that girl to like me, or all that sort of social validation that happens in your adolescence. I grew up in this milieu of of Lakewood that was like, wow. One end of the spectrum, there's the the role, there's the game, the version of Mark Echo, uh, Mark Malachofsky by birth, that is like the nice Jewish boy from Lakewood, the good twin, you know, um, from Lakewood. And then there's the the mark echo the mark melkovsky who's like into art and was exceptional on a peer basis not i, don't, I wouldn't say i'm that exceptional but i was better than my peer set or i stood out because of my affinity for art and illustration so i very much um, attached to that so my adolescent years going through that was sort of coming out of the bubble of naivete of like, oh, wow, like, isn't every kid in America going through this? <laughs> you know, it wasn't until college when you, you know, when you're like, wow, this was pretty abnormal compared to all these other people, black, white, and otherwise. Just ha- having such a sort
1: of diverse community and a, a, yeah. a sort of shared milieu.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing, and, you know... Um, totally off-topic it probably won't make the cut but it's interesting there is a guy who's writing a book on Lakewood right now interesting really interesting that's really digging into this because a lot of there's other there's like some athletes that came from there and rich Medina like grew up of rich Medina we we went to high school together um so it's an interesting place uh and um uh but it shaped me you know
1: now this is obviously in a pre-internet era There is, you know, I always talk about how, like, back in these days, me and my friends had a VHS tape we would record every time rap music was on TV. Sure, sure. But, uh, you know, you are getting interested in illustration and graffiti and airbrushing Mm -hmm. and emulating guys like Shirt Kings and Mm -hmm. Fade and these guys. Sure. How are you even getting exposed to the work that they're doing in Jamaica, Queens, in...
0: Well, that was the interesting part of of um, the culture and media culture at that time. I think it's one of the reasons that to this day I have such an affinity towards, like, um, uh, you know, uh, um, emerging technological trends. Because I always, I don't know, I always had that kind of pirate radio curiosity. And I guess I knew that there was, and my peers, like they just had all the transfer of, um insights so if it was like being at a a friend's house and there's like Blackbeat magazine and you're scrolling through the pages and you see LL wearing an airbrush thing you know Mm -hmm. um if it was like uh you know one of my favorite uh um people in the space Ralph McDaniels and video music box and that early, remember, we didn't have a lot of channels. But you, you know, when you get when you know, video music box came yeah. on, like, pay attention, you know. Uh, so there were the signals. They were you had to find it. It didn't find you. It wasn't like you showed up to McDonald's for the you know Travis Scott, <laughs> you know, collabo, right? Yeah. Um, so you had to find it. It didn't find you. And uh, just again, I think it's a universal story. You're 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 adolescent. You're trying to fit in to your tribe. You're finding the boundaries of your tribe. You're defining who they are, and you are sharing your interests. I was good at art, and you know, um, couldn't rap. I had friends that could rap. I had friends that could break dance. I couldn't break dance, right? Um, uh, you didn't really do graffiti in Lakewood the way that it was happening in philadelphia or new york right or in the boroughs uh um and in other urban properly urban you know physical cities okay with with train infrastructure but we knew it was like the thing right so when you would go to the mall and you and end up at the the bookstore with my dad and like that henry chiffon and martha cooper book still like that was like a profound you know you take like i it, you know when I think about like moments in my life that were just like, whoo, you know, like the that scene of like discovering that going through the books and finding that that book and being like, <gasps> you know, this music played, you know, all the color spilled out in my face and seeing Dondi, you know, across the like this Spider-Man figure, you know, mounting the, the train. Like, what is this? What is this? this craziness and then you connect it you go visit family in queens or uh, go to trenton or go just you know family function stuff and you see the elevated trains and you'd see it and you're like oh it starts you start to realize your place in the space you
1: well know? speaking of, of henry and martha and, and those people you know to watch style wars it's very clear that this is like a very insular community that yes. is also very competitive So I I have to wonder, like, both what inspired you to want to participate in that and also what gave you the confidence as a suburban kid in -hmm. the middle of Jersey to feel like I'm ready to put myself out there knowing that this is a very uh, cutthroat artistic scene?
0: I don't know that I knew that. I don't know that you, I knew it was like, oh my gosh, like, did you watch Star Wars, it's dangerous out there, you know, like. You're, you're just a young adult. I think that was maybe what I was drawn to. Okay. Cause I couldn't, I wasn't athletic. Mm-hmm. I couldn't play football. Like I wasn't that coordinated for baseball, but I could draw.
1: And was so there was something
0: about the extreme sport of the culture that like, I couldn't skate. I couldn't do a cherry picker on my Hutch Trickstar, star. Right. Like it looked <laughs> good parked in front of my garage, but I was a big fatty. Right. So <laughs> for me, The art and and what's interesting is that it was always just a really sensitive emotional thing.
1: I don't know. For me watching Star Wars, I was like, oh, this is like this is like watching pro basketball. Right. Like these these people are really doing it and and it's there's a a sort of cutthroat competitiveness to this and like if I'm gonna participate in this, like I gotta be ready for
0: You gotta be good at it.
1: Yes. I have to be good, I have to be really ambitious. Yeah. uh, And, you know, you gotta be ready for some confrontation.
0: I mean, if you play football, if you played basketball, like if you wrestled, if you, whatever your vocation was, right? So I think there was a little bit of this sort of like, oh, look how cute he can draw. You know, he's so sensitive. And then maybe there was something that identified of like, no, I could be kind of, you know, I use the metaphor, like the extreme sport of graffiti. Like maybe there was something, in a culture where people were skating and doing BMX and like it was a way to signal a sort of defiance and sort of radical independence, you know? And could I say that to you at the time? Did I know that it would have me do some stupid shit in my life later on and like learn those boundaries? I couldn't fully grok that, but that just was what it was. And I think every adolescent in finding who they are finding their identity getting sort of the 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 peer validation the self uh, um, the sense of a self um, formed you have to test those boundaries I never it never felt um, you know uh, I look back at it Would I tell my children not to do the things that I did sure right cuz that's because you get you get old right Mm -hmm. and you lose that your prefrontal cortex starts to work, right? So you you start to have executive functioning skills. But when you're 18 and 19, or whatever, 16, and and that part of your brain is not fully developed, that's the beauty of life, right? That's what life's about.
1: So speaking of finding your identity, around the same time is when you arrive upon your name. And uh, there's nothing, I think, more central or core to a person's identity than their
0: name. That's right.
1: How did you land upon Echo, and, and what did that mean to you in that moment?
0: Well, it has a, it, it's an interesting, um, it's a kind of funny, kind of nerdy backstory, because it was actually given to me as a nickname by my mother, right? Because I, I have a twin sister, Marcy, Marci, M-A-R-C-I, M-A-R-C. She's five minutes older than me. My mother did not know she was carrying twins until she bared us, okay? It's a fact, right? So. Back in 72, when I was born, I guess, you know, they didn't have quite the, you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't have uh, all the same tests or whatever, and they missed that one. It did. It, they missed it. So, But you look back at the photos, and you're like, how could you miss it? My mother was like huge, you know, so how, who missed that? Um, and my mother would c- go to the doctor and say, why do I feel kicking in my breast and in the lower portion of my belly? How is the baby able to do that? It doesn't seem, maybe, is, is, he, is he or she going to be all right? You know? Uh, oh, it's just an echo in the fluids. It's just an echo in the fluids. Don't worry. And then the echo in the fluids was me. And so that was like a nickname. That was a fun thing to share, like, you know, to kind of get me to blush. And family functions. And then um, it, it served useful. Here I am It's sixth grade. You know, I got the, the Henry Chiffon, Martha Cooper, at Subway Art book people have got nicknames, you know, they're, they're using tag names. They're like the name is a part of the lore, right? It's the, it's the, um, uh, uh, you know, it's like the foundation story, right? For the, you know, the superhero. So, uh, I started using it. I just started signing things as echo. I was like, that's my, that's my name. You know, and at first my parents were like, Oh, it's kind of weird. He signed, you know, I don't even think they, I don't even know that they thought it was weird necessarily, but, uh, I just leaned into it. Like, I didn't realize how meaningful it was going to be until I kind of started the business, because I really, through my, through my high school years, identified with that, like that people would refer to me as Echo, like that's how my friends, people I was doing business with, airbrushing, like conducting business, I marketed it as Echo Airbrushing, you know, and I would, that's who I was. How old were you when you launched the airbrushing business? I started formerly airbrushing in eighth grade. I got my air compressor and airbrush. And also another kind of crazy thing about Lakewood, luck, time, space, luck, right? Airbrush Action Magazine. Do you know any other magazine in the world that's on on the topic of airbrushing? No. Well, the ultimate and singular magazine of the industry is Airbrush Action Magazine, published in Lakewood, New Jersey. (laughs) Okay. So when I would go to the art supply store downtown, mm-hmm. there would be the airbrush, I'm like, why do they have so many of them? Because he's down on by Lake Carousel Joe. like in the back, and, and I would go visit the guy that was the publisher, I can't remember, recall his name, but like his mom would be there sweeping the back of the garage, there'd be stacks of boxes of magazines. So what are the odds of that? It's right? Crazy. So early shopping uh, at art supply stores Seeing the airbrush, connecting the dots that that's a thing, that I want to make my own clothes for my friends.
1: And because you're seeing in word, I'm seeing
0: it in like magazines and in videos, and I'm confident that I could do it, right. And I remember because my parents are entrepreneurial, um, they were afraid though because it was a big commitment, right? Like buying an air compressor, right. Uh, all those equipment, I mean, it was probably two $300 startup costs, mm-hmm. right? Which at that time, yeah. so a yeah, significant like a amount G, of like money. now. So, like, it's like buying a kid a piano, right? Or an instrument. Like, are you sure you're going to use it, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of that sort of, mm, is he going to really, is this going to be like a, a summer dalliance and then he's going to have all this expensive shit that we're going to, you, you know, we're going to waste, like, good money on. Um, I coerced my parents and had to make a whole appeal to my dad. I had an advocate in my uncle Carl, who was like a very blue collar guy, um, who was like, let him use his hands, learn with his hands. My, he was like a diesel engineer, you know, a diesel engine engineer, um, uh, very blue collar. And so they, they supported me and I, I started uh, formally and you know, with the materials in eighth grade probably, Come the end of freshman year i was selling t-shirts for fundraisers like for the school like in wow. the school and i was soliciting it like all throughout you know I, sophomore year it really turned on and by like junior and senior year
1: how, how much are you making a month by the time yeah by the end oh of high my school? goodness
0: i don't remember the exact calculus but i mean we're talking significant you know i, I would say by the time i was a senior like going into that summer the word of mouth had grown so much i had such a sort of avid clientele i probably was i don't know making cash um you know at least a couple grand a few grand like on a good week wow. you know so i you know there's some some droughts because i was going to when i went to Rutgers and i started school i would just be like i can't work right now i can't take i can't say yes to to any work but it was always like this like, you know, oh man, is that calling and like the business was there. I was gonna you say, know? so,
1: you know, you're, you're making thousands of dollars. Thousands in, of dollars. In, in the late 80s and as a high school senior, but you still end up going to pharmaceutical school. Yes. What, wh- why the hedge? What, what was holding you back from I just th- jumping in?
0: Yeah, I think um, that stemmed from we got to rewind to that period, right? So like we don't, there's a lot of things different today, right? So um, I think what's maybe universally not different is that sort of sense, however real or imagined, of following in a parent's footstep or doing kind of, quote, the right thing from an academic point of view. So my dad, who ironically, it was right in front of me, Wasn't even practicing pharmacy by the time I graduated high school, but he went to Rutgers College of Pharmacy And I just you know, like I knew like you could Couldn't be like I wasn't smart enough to be like a doctor. I didn't necessarily have the reading Capacity at that time or the interest or patience for reading to be a lawyer or something like that Um, So I just thought like oh, this is kind of check a box like I'll, I'll make my parents proud you know so and i also thought like oh I'll get good letters of recommendation because my dad graduated there it's probably like i'll be a little bit more of a ringer and i i was a good student you know i was a i was a good i was a good student um i was very active in like student body stuff you know i was like class president you know all that kind of all, all that fun stuff um so i applied to one school and one school all, only for early admission and that was Rutgers College of Pharmacy. Why? Because my dad went there. Did my dad ever say, "Son, I want you to go to Rutgers College of Pharmacy"? No, he never said that. But it was like an unspoken thing. And I think even I look back at that period of my relationship with my father, I'm much closer to my dad today uh, than at that period. Because I think you know, teenagers at that, that that those years of like self-identity, you kind of like pull back from like wanting too much. Advocacy or coaching from your your parents, you know, so I thought it was just like kind of do the right thing, kind of a thing, and make them proud.
1: But you, but you go and then you continue to work on the airbrushing on the yeah. side. Yeah. And I know you you know you have a moment with Red Alert that's very affirming yeah. to yeah. you, and I think like a, a real point of inflection oh, in yeah. your sort of. Ambition. Yes. Can can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, that was like, you know, I think the the power of sort of, um, to your point about its cutthroat or being daring or having the confidence, I go to Rutgers, my identity, it starts to kind of cure like glue or paint drying, you know, like, okay, you're different than these other kids. Your backstory is different. Like, it's not, it's not, it's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. That was a w- interesting period because I found myself sort of like not fitting in. I couldn't find a tribe. Like, you know what I mean? I couldn't find, you know, like It was I, a
1: much more balkanized scene.
0: Yeah, it was much more, yeah, that's right. What's the word, balkanized? Yeah,
1: yeah I, I think so. Like the Balkan states?
0: Yeah, yeah, Balkan, balkanized, balkanized. Yeah, it was like, balkanized, like the sneaker? Right, yeah, balkanized, yeah. It was definitely more, um, you know, segregated. You know, the fraternities, Black and white, there were lines, right? Um, and, and, and generally black, white, ethnic, you know, whatever it was, Hispanic, you know, Filipino, whatever, like people sort of oriented in very clear tribes. Like if you grew up, which was a very like 80s thing, like in, in, in and a part of like what I, what I refer to as like convergence culture because of that media, when media sort of gets disintermediated, I think we start to get become permissioned to like... A bunch of things rather than being defined by one thing because there was a time where it's like if you were into skating or bmxing like that's all you were into like yep. if you're into basketball like you slept with your basketball you, you went out to dinner with your basketball and your girlfriend you know you, you had your starter, about that. you had started like everything was basketball right like you you knew the stats you knew you followed the college teams whatever So if you were into a domain, heavy metal, if you were like emo or goth, like you did not enter, there wasn't a lot of uh, interplay, right? I just believed in like, if something was interesting and you're curious and that I was drawn to invention. So like, that was it it for me. And I was like, oh, well, I can't really fit in anywhere else. So I just so went deep on the, the art thing and the airbrushing that I started creating my own uh, um, mental model. And one of the things, you know, you'd go home on Friday night, kids were going out to fraternity parties and occasionally I'd try and just feel like, this doesn't feel right. And like I'd go to, and people would just kind of question me. I had a lot of people questioning me. I had like white kids questioning why you're, you, you know, you're so wannabe, that would be like the thing. I had uh black kids kind of like s- suspicious as to what my motivations were, um you know um uh, maybe encroaching or a try hard or colonizer or whatever the the you know like it was tough to fit in. I had my little friend of misfit nerds, and we and it was a reflection of us like we were all a very mixed group. we were kind of the the kids that were like, well, we're into all these things, mm-hmm. you know like uh, you could be into the cure and into the tribe called quest right like it's okay right it's not that deep right so um uh long story short you know friday nights what do you do what's the ritual you put on the radio get the, the cassette ready the tape you know it was like i guess it was thursday night stretching b- bobito right but yep. that came later yeah, right was. this is even earlier this is earlier you know uh dj red alert who is a new york City uh, radio DJ, also produced famously one of my favorite albums of all time, done by the forces of nature, Jungle Brothers, right? Mm -hmm. Had his own management group, right? Uh, Those were like early Violator days. I think there was a relationship to rest in peace, Chris Lighty, whatever. I'm not kind of vaguely knew that that was the orbit, right?
1: But Also, this is a time when there is no rap radio, you have Two hours of rap.
0: You got Friday on, night. Yes,
1: on the radio for yeah. the whole week.
0: You got BLS, and you got, wait, 107.5, 98.7, right? Yep. And you just bounce back and forth. This is pre-bomb <laughs> flex. This is it's a different time. And I grew up with that in high school, so that was a ritual. So my Fridays I would go to college. I'd be the kid in the room drawing by himself, listening to Red Alert. And Red Alert would be shouting people out. And I just was curious, like, how do I get a shout out? It was really that simple. It was really that simple. It was like, I want a shout out. So I start to um, promote like parties at Rutgers. I started doing, uh, I did like an event, like I guess my early entree to like Complex Con was the hip hop bazaar, mm-hmm. right? At the Rutgers College Student Center. And I had friends that were into hip hop and it was like an emerging thing. and we were industrious entrepreneurial kids and like we could host an exhibition we could have performances we could have a dj whatever so i'd call ralph mcdaniels and i would bomb red alert with faxes i'd go to the to you know the kinkos and i would just draw stuff i'd get the ship i'd look at the liner notes of the records to find like where the where the where where, where the street address was Mm -hmm. for packages i'd I'd research the the location of the, you know, slightly stalkerish, but not really. i mean, find the location where his um, studio was, where they were recording a show. I would just mail shit. And I would just like, you know, hit him with stuff until, you know, one day I'm sitting there on a Friday night and I'm taping, like I do all the time. And it wasn't even like, that's like, oh, I'm like hunting for him to shout me out. I wasn't even that conscientious of it because I was sending stuff to a lot of people. You know, like I was doing that, sending to Tribe. I was sending to Spike Lee. I was sending to Chuck D. I was sending to, oh, every, anyone I looked up to in the culture, I would try to get to their management and send it to Red Alert. You know, the next day, all my friends heard it. All the people within my little, it was like, oh, that's it's like this little dose of sort of currency of validation. And that was like a contagion for me.
1: How did that, like, what was the battery that that put in your bag and how did that change? Oh my
0: gosh, it was like such a, a sort of like, it went from like role playing, you know, like you're role playing, right? Like you're, you're faking it till you make it. Like, you know, you're, 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 you're too, you're doubtful, you're, you're, you're not good enough. And, um, you're not talented enough. They're not going to see you, all of that talk that is just a part of doubt and fear. And then suddenly there was this sort of moment of, you know, uh, exchange of of, of validation. However real or imagined he intended it to be, it was enough for me. And it gave me, it was like, oh shit, like who else is sitting around here? Who else uh, on this dorm? On this campus is getting shouted out by by Red Alert. That's I started getting like that kind of level of confidence.
1: Okay. So that
0: opened, delusion.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, no. But that's part of you know. Okay. So so once you have this moment of affirmation from uh, Red Alert, and you're now feeling a, a bit more like an active participant in in the scene, and you start making connections with people like Michael Bivins, yeah, and Um, Spike Lee yeah um, other
0: and it was a similar kind of path it was a similar approach and uh, I I used to call them like swag bombs where you know I guess it was early viral marketing right like there was no social media I couldn't DM anyone right so if I could show them how much love and reverence I had for them by like breaking my back over a weekend or two to make you know one of one item And go out of my way to make with a deep intentionality that's going to show up to them, in a way that's not going to creep them out. Very Mm -hmm. important insight, right? You don't want to creep people out. That it might it might result in them becoming aware of the space you take up. So, like I once I got the bug from uh, Red Alert, um, who's who to this day I love so deeply. Then it was Spike Lee and, and, you know, I remember he was coming to Rutgers to speak and Spike was like super influential for me. I mean, like he, you know, just everything that he was touching and saying and doing creatively and, you know, running Levi's ads, Nike ads to like making the films, the impact of the music he was bringing to us, right? From his films and sort of deepening the exchange, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I, I did the same thing, Spike, you know, DeKalb Avenue, Spike's joint, you know, and I went and, you know, Malcolm X was coming out and my clients and my, 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 my friends were, they were very into Malcolm X prior to the film coming out. This was a part of the, um, I think the, the, the cultural diaspora, the, the, was a part of the communication of black culture. And uh um I'd gotten exposed to him through I remember KRS One and uh um you know the by any means necessary album cover and learning that it was the same picture, right? Mm-hmm. So I would constantly do portraits of Malcolm X. It was constant, like, you know, request. So when the film was coming out and I just read the autobiography, right? So here I am, like, this Jewish kid in Lakewood, New Jersey, again, like, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. What the hell's going on, you know? Um, yeah.
1: Today's episode of the Idea Generation podcast is brought to you by Tres Generaciones Tequila. At its heart, Idea Generation is about the triumph of creative visionaries. But as anyone that's listened to the pod before knows, success always comes in the face of adversity. However, while the conditions creatives operate in may not be perfect, your tequila can be. Tres has a rich history dating back to its founding in 1973, which helps explain why the brand is a champion of those who persevere. The best value props are often the simplest, and Tres Generaciones is as straightforward as they come. Made from 100% blue agave, and water sourced from an ancient aquifer beneath the tequila volcano, Tres is triple distilled for unrivaled smoothness. So whether you're already at the top of your game or just setting out on your creative voyage, let Tres be your running partner on this journey. Tres Generaciones, for those ready to fail twice and get up Tres. I know that as the idea of Echo as a clothing company starts to come into focus, you pitch both Michael Bivens and Spike Lee yeah. on this, and for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to work out, and then you end up finding a, a partner in a yeah. very unlikely place yes. in an Orthodox Jewish gentleman named yeah. Seth Gerzberg. yeah. So I guess tell me a little bit about that, A, the process of pitching yeah. and being rejected, and then how you found Seth and how you felt, you know, how are your thoughts about partnership and what you needed in a sure. uh, partner changed?
0: Okay, so let's, okay, so the, first of all, the pitches, it wasn't like Spike was in the room on that pitch. And what's interesting is when you go in cold, even to Michael Bivens, you know, um, and I remember his aunt ran his Philly office, and I had a good rapport with her, and my good friend was, uh, uh, a friend of mine who's also from Lakewood named Khalid Brock, um, who was a singer, And when I did the swag bomb for Michael for Biv, we put a cassette of Kali into that jacket, right? And so suddenly I'm in it. That was another moment of sort of affirmation, because suddenly what was sort of this role playing—it's now one of my peers, my very close near peer—is now getting signed to Motown Records to be a part of Biv Ten Family Records, right? So. Things just start to change, right? And and uh, I had uh, um, started, uh, I guess, I guess just the 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 level of promotion I was making around the Echo business, Echo airbrushing, even at Rutgers, I started to get more confidence because when I'd have the exchanges, I get a call. I remember getting a call back uh, from uh, Chris Lighty calling, leaving a voice message for me, like loving when I try to get to Q-tip, like I made a, I airbrush something for, for like a love letter to Q-tip. Um, I don't even know that Tip ever got it, but Lighty got it, and I remember that voicemail. So all of these were like sort of little nodes of affirmation, right, and they were composed and building on one another. And you start to get this sort of level of uh, swagger, uh, confidence, delusion, okay, where I show up to, in Philadelphia to the Biv, Biv's office, he doesn't know I'm about to pitch him. He just thinks I'm there with Khalil and I just bum rush him with a pitch. So I look back at those pitches. Even Jeff Tweedy, in you know who was running Spike's Joint um, uh, on DeKalb Avenue in Brooklyn. I just was a guy that walked in looking for Sp- like I literally would do that to show up like looking like you know like who's in charge, and then I would start pitching. So. It I look back at that and I I talk I talk about it in my book as if it was like this, oh I pitched and I got ready. I don't even know that they knew I was pitching. You know what I mean? Like so there's there's first that. Let's just stop okay. and like I don't want there to be a um uh, uh I don't want to be hyperbolic about it. But but in my mind Okay in my mind it was real. Okay. And in my mind it was a no. Right? So when when Jeff is like, this is good, but can you change all this ECHO e- to S-P-I-K-E joint, like spikes mm-hmm. joint, could you change this? This is good, but if you did this, maybe it would be better here because we're not really doing this. And uh, people weren't connecting the dots. You know, you're just sort of like in this sort of self-made reality distortion, um, you're confident, you know, what you, what you need. And I needed it to be Echo Unlimited. That was the brand. That's what I I had articulated. I wrote a couple of drafts of business plans. So it kept refining the pitch. So I'm, I'm shooting blanks, right? Swing and miss, swing and miss, swing and miss. One of my good high school friends who was a year younger than me, is a guy named Perry Landisberg, would say, hey, this bit, like, he would actually kind of, he was a like kind of a whisperer like a like a online business planning he was the one giving me the sort of the insights of like if you're gonna be serious and you want an investment like you need an investor and you got to write a plan you gotta roll what's your plan and his mother happened to be my art teacher at Lakewood High School right so my junior year art teacher Mrs. Landisberg, was really influential on me and she very much affirmed in school like my skills right so I had a special bond with them. And they would kind of like counsel me, you know? He says, oh, I got this guy, man. He's kind of crazy. I don't know, man. He's just like you. He's entrepreneurial. And he's at school. I think he's about to leave school just like you are. And his name is Seth, and you should meet him. And he's, he's like into real estate. And he sells architectural, you know, objects. And he, he, like, he was over in Vienna doing I'm like is this kid, you know? He's talking about this guy like he's a 40-year-old man. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, it was my future partner, Seth. But, Seth he, but he's
1: 19 at the time as well. He's a
0: baby, too. But he was just as delusional as me.
1: But he this is, <laughs> he, he had like the rickshaw business. He's selling. He was uh, uh, it was
0: unbelievable. He was so resourced. He was just like a, a creatively restless entrepreneur, um, uh, had uh, side hustles left and right. Uh, would, would rent or buy rickshaws and would, like run up and down the, the, the shore, the Jersey Shore with all his friends and they charge people for a ride and he'd just like run on with these rickshaws.
1: So you're trying to pitch to people that you think sort of are culturally makes sense right. for you and the vision for this brand. And then you have this guy that you've been introduced to who culturally feels like it's not the right fit and you initially rebuff Seth And eventually, though, end up circling back with him. Yes. And he ends up becoming your business partner for 15 years or so. That's
0: right. That's right. Yeah. So Seth, uh, I mostly rebuffed because it wasn't like a cultural misfit as much as I just found it. I was very intimidated, right? Because here was a a person my age or maybe a year older um, who uh, exuded a different level of maturity and smarts. And I... It made me fearful, right? Like, what does he know that I don't know? Um, On some just chess game stuff, because Uh, he understood how
1: to operate business. Yeah, he he knew he had 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 an answer to
0: the questions. Okay, he had an answer. Like I had questions, he had an answer, right? And and when he didn't have an answer, he had the sort of brash belief in himself and in me. Just like we'll figure it out. Let's just do it, right? And it was a lot more. He was a very you know, uh, confident, hands-on guy, and uh, he looked at things very uh, practically, um, just, you know, sort of Lego style, let's just get in there and make the clay and not worry about it. And when you don't come from, not that he came from, like, tremendous wealth, he was pretty self-made himself, but it was just not something that I grew up with, like uh, of like that sort of confidence of taking that sort of leap. Yeah. Right? Okay, maybe I look back and like, well, my parents did, right? They left their careers mid-career to go sign up to do you know something. Um, but here it was at the beginning of my career, and it was kind of felt like, well, college, the, the implications, leaving college. Ooh, these are big. Like what he was willing to do. You know, and he, I mean, this guy was traveling in. Austria and he knew investors that had you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know like ooh, An investor, you know, I remember him coming to me with like a bag of cash like the first bag of cash to fund uh, Our first major screen. It was my second t-shirt right? the first t-shirt I'd printed on my own at a local screen printer it had like the the red tag of ECHO unlimited and the character on the back with his foot up and it was like it was, like, in the sole of his his shoe, of his boot was ECHO, and that's what I was, like, pushing as, like, my logo. and But I wanted to print the multicolor thing. I couldn't afford to do it um, from all my artwork, and Seth was like, I'm, uh, uh, I'll be your partner. And after all that sort of me going out there, blue sky, it was mostly my own pride, my own sort of overconfidence that had me rebuking him. It wasn't because I didn't culturally fit. It was more like I was honestly scared because what I was gonna be signing up for. And suddenly now I need a lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. A lawyer, I've never had to hire a lawyer, you know? Gonna need to write a contract, all these things that were really abstract. Um, But he just, he actually instilled the confidence in me to his credit, like he was an important part of those that network of validators and affirmers, right? He was uh, a critical part of the equation.
1: Now, I'm curious, because this is like 91, 92, um, pre-Fat Farm, there is no sort of like, the the hip-hop derived clothing market does not exist. The only things that are, you know, the closest things are Stussy, for example.
0: At a mass level, there were, People doing things. Okay. But so, like yeah. if you were in the underground. So that's what
1: I was going to say. Who? What were the brands that you were looking at as as a blueprint or something that you were like, okay, I see.
0: Carl Kanai was coming up. Okay. Right? Cross Colors was coming okay. up.
1: Cross okay. Colors, okay.
0: Cross Colors was popping. Um, uh, you know, I would read The Source magazine, right? So The Source became like the new. That became, you know, okay, we talk about when I was, you know, back in the 80s, what was your vehicle? Well, you didn't have the source, but when the source came in, that was, that was like the Bible, right? So the source became a vehicle and you'd read about, you know, I remember reading about Russell's going to launch a clothing company and, you know, um, uh, there was an emergent thing happening. Okay, right? so, it was so there's, there's
1: the, the the first kernels of of that and yeah, and just, and,
0: you know, and just like style, like the vernacular of the aesthetic, the aesthetic was was real. You know what I mean? Like a, in 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 hip hop culture, like the 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 milieu was projecting and building a aesthetic uh, identity. Right. Mostly assembly It was mostly like a collage mm-hmm. of other brands. Right. If it was Adidas or polo, polo sport. and tommy and so i felt like oh like tommy If Tommy timberland i want to do that it was again wild delusions you know and i always had that i didn't i didn't want to just be like a streetwear brand it never like occurred to me like that was the ceiling it was always like i want to do i want to be like timberland big i want to be like tommy hilfiger big or or polo big
1: where did that ambition come from
0: i don't know Maybe it was just because that was my, I don't know that, I think that was just sort of, um, you know, you grow up, maybe that was, uh, maybe one of the privileges of suburbia.
1: I don't know. Which Okay, we, I asked this earlier and we didn't, we sort of didn't get to it, but what do you think the role of suburbia is in the American pop
0: culture ecosystem? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think uh, it's a really good question. Um, increasingly, I think, I look at it more like, what is the role of, of youth culture in American popular, the pop culture? I think youth culture has, is like a wavelength, right? It's like a Bluetooth frequency, right? And every generation has its own frequency, okay? And so if you came up in the 80s, when I came up, and, and, and professionally in the early 90s, there was a certain frequency and the people were tuned into that frequency. And it did not discriminate where it ended and landed and where it went to, okay? So I think there's an important uh, role of um, adoption and sort of curiosity, c- cultural curiosity, uh, our habits our shared beliefs what's culture if it's not our habits and our shared beliefs okay really that's yeah. really what it is yeah it's, uh, people get really touchy about what the word is and i i get it right i get i get like from a um an african diaspora black culture totally valid perspective but when i when we zoom out and we look at this culture when we say broadly in the middle of a park with thousands mm-hmm. of people, it's a what are we doing what, what's a pattern that's happening here. Yeah. What's the ideas. matching pattern uh, that people are, are organizing around the frequency? So, I think suburbia is just a place, right? I think um, I think it was important in shaping uh, America's awareness. So, suburbia becomes an important geography, right, uh, for this frequency to expand. I think it's a valid place. I think you're going to have sometimes in that frequency, the signal doesn't come in all the way, mm-hmm. right? There's a little misinterpretation. Uh, they heard it through static, or they think they heard one thing and they heard another thing. It's not perfect, okay? Um, but in terms of the cultural patterns and their ability to sort of it extends one of the great things about america right is that that that's the powerful export right that we we do that and it's sort of like this quake and it just right and it goes to to suburbia it goes way beyond suburbia it goes into you know the mountains of brazil right goes into the 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 streets of japan
1: right all right so you and seth partner yes he puts up five thousand dollars yes and you guys agree to print up your first real t-shirts that's right
0: go to brooklyn we print the first t's
1: Now, I know that the color separation process was a very big ordeal that you spent an inordinate amount of time learning about um, in order to get the product to the place that you felt comfortable. Right. Um, I guess, can you tell me a little bit about that and then also sort of how that process worked as an allegory for sort of how you would approach things throughout your career?
0: I I think that it's a geeky insight Um, but I think it's an important insight for makers. Uh, uh, one thing that, that naive slightly delusional curious path would afford me was the the confidence, this is also a a big validator of confidence, by the way, is your own development of your own knowledge as a, as a knowledge as a craft, right? We rewind to that period in streetwear. Screen printing, go to Point Pleasant, print my first screen printer. I come with a seven color thing. He's like, we can't print seven colors here. We can do three. Because first of all, you can't afford to print because it's gonna cost you too much per color ink. And then the color separation process, which is like a fancy way of basically making the art ready for the press, okay? You you take a piece of art and uh, multiple color art. We we typically, a photo is usually printed with cyan, magenta, yellow, black, CMYK not always but in print industry and in magazines that's how they print something to pr- us to our eye to visualize it as full color uh in that period of of style um the it was kind of like a, a trend that was coming out of uh the sports market if you remember like you have like the raiders t-shirt and it would be like a, a trophy or a giant's ring, you know, and be it'd be on black, it'd be this oversized, it'd look metallic, and was so like ASMR and so like heavy metal magazine, like chrome and all of that color on a black shirt. But you would go to into streetwear, or you'd look at what was early streetwear and skate. Everything was flat, one color, two color, vector, you know, word marks, right? But my artwork was really dense, so I couldn't, I wouldn't transfer the T-shirt, so I had to figure out how to crack the code to do the color separations. At the time, there was a company in Houston that was called Cerachrome that I found out through a lot of research, right, a lot of just going down that rabbit hole and just learning whatever, being willing to sort of discover and being bold enough to call, uh, oh, that's the place that the NHL and NFL are printing. They're they're getting their colors, t-shirts separated at Cerachrome. So the guy in Brooklyn said, if you bring me the sets, you bring me the films, I'll print whatever. As long as I could print it, if it's, you know, uh, I think it had to be like 60 dots per inch, like the the line, the screen weight, that's like, because the ink's really thick. And he's like, if you could do that, I'll print whatever you bring me, okay? Stop yelling at my art department that they're not good enough, like that they can't do. You figure it out. Cerachrom, column, $5,000, $3,000, whatever it was to do the colors. Which is the, the
1: amount of money that you have to make all the shirts.
0: It's like the whole budget, okay? And forget that, just, just the calculus of what I'd have to sell in order to amortize that setup cost of, the, the setup cost was too much. So I had to figure out how to crack that code. So I went on a mission trying to just open my mind, open my, like I'm learning all about desktop publishing, This was before Steve Jobs was back at Apple, right? So this this is how far back we go. When Apple, you get an Apple operating system, a Mac OS operating system on a PC. It was like a two year window where, before Steve came back to Apple, where you could get a a cheap Mac. So that's what I did. And I met uh, someone at a trade show, um, this guy Ken, who had a, a brand called The Eighth Day. It was one of the first like marijuana brands, right? And he he printed like these dewy, wet, green bud t- you know t-shirts, a big like marijuana buds. It looked like High Times. Like he just cut something out of High Times magazine and printed it on, by the way, not only black, but like on tie dye. I like, how are you doing this? He's like, oh, I'll just do the color set. And he knew how to do it. And he was the guy who kind of became my one of my early Yodas, talk about like mentoring you know um, and you had
1: to fly across the country to go I had to flag- spend time with him to that's do that's right
0: this. that's right yeah i flew flew across the country and he said uh, i couldn't really pay him right so he he said look ah uh, you you could pay me by buying a computer system from my boy cuz his dad puts PCs together okay. i'll hook you up with my rig he'll make money on that and that's how you'll pay me and just bring me bring me some new jersey weed like what do you guys smoke out there <laughs> now, I, I have to ask- Which now, is frightening, and I do not endorse uh, <laughs> doing traveling with uh, that, even though it's a much different day today. But uh, that was like the first and last time I, I transported- uh,
1: <laughs> Interstate?
0: Interstate, yeah.
1: Um, I have to ask, this, this pops into my head, uh, thinking about this period, so, so you have whatever it is, six SKUs that you're selling- That's right. Uh, Four of them are on black teas and not reproducing well. Two of them are on white teas and they are selling like hotcakes. Right. Why were you not making all white teas in this moment?
0: Right, I guess just that delusion that I could do it. You know, that's actually a really good, that's a good question. Um, I think I wanted, okay, we go back to why, where did you get that ambition, right? When we talked about why Tommy, why Ralph? Right, well my world okay let's go to you want to understand my world you go walk the halls of the ocean county mall okay what was in the ocean county mall right there was a macy's right there was like a Foot Locker. so i was my the sort of production um mm-hmm. constraints that brands that showed up there they didn't have those production production constraints because they were importing stuff and you look at the inside of the label and you'd be like hong kong where's that you know India, you know, wh- wherever, uh, Korea. Um, and you'd see these highly produced things. So the my aperture towards what I thought was good at a product level was informed by the sort of what was in the the four walls of that that Ocean County mall, which I reflect on it now. I was like, oh, that wasn't really terribly good research. You know, it's not like I was w- going, uh, yeah, okay, so yeah, I went to... Patricia Fields. And yeah, I went to the extra large store. I even sold to those guys, right? Um, But my worldview on the things that I was buying with my own money and income were some of the things that were existing in in the mall. So I think that informed the parameters. And I just kept seeing all of that chromatic stuff printing on dark and it was like an obsession. So and I don't even know it's it's interesting. I don't even know that statistically. Like I don't know that they, I they that, sold better that it or anything. They sold better.
1: It just was you just wanted to st- It was like I had that.
0: to be able to do it and I had, I had like a it was like a technical achievement for me. It was like a uh, an achievement of my craft to be able to 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 say I could do that. So you start
1: with these, you know, this array of t-shirts that are essentially mining your sketchbooks yeah. with graphics. Yeah. At what point do you start contemplating in a, in a really articulate way what the brand of Echo Unlimited means and, and what that sort of relationship with the consumer is
0: about? Mm-hmm. I think I, I understood the convergence thing early on. I couldn't articulate it. Um, and I was very intimidated. I was often ridiculed by my peers for the point of view that I had on the brand. Because there was a certain orthodoxy happening within emerging streetwear, right? Um, I remember uh, that was like you know Stussy was the king, but he was already like the mall brand, right? Uh, Stussy brand, um, and uh, you know I, I I remember being at a trade show, and all of my near peers and not so near peers that were bigger commercial brands. Started encroaching a little bit on the aesthetic of what I was doing and what some of my near peers were doing So let's say the near peers were tribal con art Triple five soul, right folks within that orbit fat farm uh, and I saw A brand like jenco like gene company, which was like all about rave culture like wide leg jeans I didn't fully get it. I knew that they were bigger right, um Uh, And I maybe had a chip on my shoulder about like the fact that they were bigger than us But I started seeing them do like graffiti word mark graffiti style hand mark illustrations with the with the word and I'm walking that trade show and I'm looking at all the brands that I Admire there's a Ralph Lauren booth there um, and there's a giant polo horse. There's a Lacoste alligator. There's the Timberland tree. And I realize I, I go back into our little section, our little area, of this trade show floor, and everybody's sort of barking or kind of shooting from the same angle, right? Uh, um, where everyone's just doing word marks. I'm like, that seems like a missed opportunity. Like, what would my logo be? Is it really that naive of a question? Like, what would my logo be? you know, I need a logo, I need a mascot, you know? And I went on that pursuit and it became sort of an organizing framework for the brand, right? And again, going back to role-playing, right? Fake it till you make it, it was a little bit of, well, if Ralph could do it, I could do it, right? If, If, you know, Mr. Lacoste, whoever invented that could do it with the alligator, I could do it. And it really just, that became the organizing framework. And then the aspiration towards um trying to elevate beyond just the printed t-shirt so the obsession that was printing on black and printing my art as i meant it right and all the novelty stuff i could do with the screen like with the screen printer and and basically really differentiate technically this is like a technological advantage for my peers they were like how is he doing that and it became like other people were doing photo prints right the other the other technical feat was, okay, this polo jacket I'm wearing, I want a jacket like this. And like, where does this shit get made? Now at that time, the only brands in my kind of cohort that were doing things at that level of manufacturing quality were the snowboard brands. The snowboard brands were doing it. You know, so like Burton, um, uh, you you know, um, I, a lot of I can't even remember all the all, all the the great names, but there's so many mm-hmm. emergent names of snowboarding brands that did like the seam seal, tape seam, the technical shit, right? Gore-Tex and you know all that 3M, and I'm like I want to do that. So it was really again, right? The role playing, all right. Well, you need a mascot. Well, you need to make stuff in Hong Kong because that's apparently where you make it. And then I went down a rabbit hole seeking production partners to to do that. I
1: remember you telling me one time uh about your first foray into denim and how that went uh left yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, can you tell me that story?
0: Yeah, the um where the buttons all fell off you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. So that was like a made in America story, which by the way, it's it's interesting because today now the world world dynamics, world culture manufacturing it was a much different dynamism today and i do believe i i look back on that period of um of uh you know there i i did i was lucky to see sort of the last days of american manufacturing and pretty much when i started the business even in america levi's was probably still doing 50 percent of their manufacturing here in the states so you can make denim here in the states and the west coast to this day is still known for some of the better wash houses but increasingly less and less and less is made made here which hopefully that's going to change um but uh yeah i had my first foray into denim and so i have the aesthetic ambition of like the snowboard brands right bells and whistles on the gear you know metal rivets and beautiful zipper poles and jeans i'm not just making like some levi's bullshit, so i'm gonna have like extra embroideries and did you know So I uh, try to do that in the States and I shipped my first batch of denim and um, grand opening, grand closing, you know, uh, those, those, those shank buttons, um, they all popped off and massive returns, you know, uh, of product. Um, and that was not be the first or the last time, you know, you're in the crafts business. It's an arts and crafts business. And the concepts like quality control and, you know, qc would you know, qc and um, really uh, having embedded people in the facility, the, the sort of engineering side, that sort of the delta between, I could do it, and then here's the product. That delta, that sort of like productionism delta, of like, oh, I could conceive it, therefore it can be, right? I didn't, I didn't have we, I, we, the team, my sister, Marcy. This is, dad. yeah,
1: Marcy's now added yeah, to the business. Yeah, my sister's in
0: the business. Um, we didn't have the engineering wherewithal. And that's when it really started to affirm for me, like, oh, there is a part of this trade that is about understanding the mousetrap of the design of the infrastructure and what that means to build and how to design that. And um, that became another obsession.
1: In a sort of tangentially related story, I know that you also, around the same time, you know, learned the very hard way about other practicalities within the business. Mm -hmm. Um, You guys go to Magic, I guess, you get $2 million worth of orders, which is a moment you talk about in your book, literally crying on the phone with your mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you very, very quickly realize that the difference between getting $2 million worth of orders and then fulfilling $2 million worth of orders and maintaining even a hair of margin are completely different things. Um, tell me a little bit about what was that realization like and then how did that inform how you guys move forward?
0: Well, that was kind of like um, that show, which is interesting because it was very affirming Because it was one of the first shows that I had a a wider collection of like cut and sewn and more styled product that I was able to sort of design and engineer from sketch to completion. I also had tremendous vulnerability because I was very dependent. I was not self-reliant. I was very dependent on kind of shady manufacturing partners, um, uh, naive about it. Not knowing how to finance it and then there's the other bit like okay, you get it made it comes in now you gotta Keep an inventory of it. You got to ship it You got to deal with returns all that all those complexities I think I think you know when I Acknowledge that in my life and in my career and I reflect on that moment and even in the insight in the book it comes a little bit with um reflection, right because in that moment of like hanging up the phone I can't believe we got $2 million in paper, whatever it was like that was so real. And it's, I I tell young people today, like let's say fundraising or they're starting a business and they they think like, okay, they closed that round of funding. They think they like, they've achieved. It's like, man, you haven't even started, you know? Um, I think, I think what it, it, uh, um, and not to take anything away from the achievement of fundraising, because it's a real material and valid achievement, but The thing is is it's the the it's getting into relationship with the problems right like for me you know like the idea of echo unlimited the idea of the rhino right that was sort of an intention setter that was the romantic sort of frame to role play to to visualize a future right But then there's the problem of having to actually make it real. And you have to love the problem as much as you love the idea, right? You have to love the problem even more so and get enriched by the reality that there will be problems to realize the idea um, and that there's actually really creative uh, moments of eureka that you start to learn to gratify your, yourself, that are not the same as my right hand drawing an illustration or painting and that, that sort of, okay, whatever adrenaline rush or satisfaction you get from completion, not the same, it's not the, but it is a sort of something going off chemically in your body that feels like, oh, I got through that, right? I got through that. And you start to learn to um, look for that and become like obsessed about that.
1: Well, the hard goods business can be incredibly brutal in in so much as you get these orders, Mm -hmm. and then you have to put up capital in order to create the goods and then fulfill them, and then you have to wait for an extended period for either returns, so you maybe not get all the money back that you've spent to create the stuff, or you do get it back and it's 180 days after the last day of sale, and so now we're talking six, nine months. And I know that in that period, Echo went through a lot of really challenging financial moments. Sure. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what on a, how did you and Seth deal with that tactically? Just pay, you know, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. Um, and also how did you manage that emotionally as someone who I know is sensitive and is yeah. an artist and, yeah. and cares deeply both about the brand and also about the team that you're managing?
0: Sure. Well, it's interesting is that um, here's the interesting thing, and I don't know how true it is today, although I, I do believe that it, it still stands to be relatively true, although I don't know that the banks, our banks and our banking infrastructure will bet on it quite the way that they did in the years that I came up. The one thing about like when did I, you asked a question before about when did you get to know that you had a brand is like when you start to be able to lend the IP, you start to take a loan against your own IP. That's when you know you have like like I was able to pledge the trademarks as one of the things besides also personal guarantees. Let's be clear. Like personally being on the hook so that there was no escape route. There was no bankruptcy. You couldn't parachute out. Like you personally are signing up for these lines of credit. There's an interesting insight that I remember oftentimes and boldly like taking massive lines of credit to fund so what were the assets that I had? I had inventory that maybe had a long shelf life, like basic core items, I could pledge that. So if it, if I went upside down, the bank takes that. Uh, I could pledge the IP, the trademarks, and then they were getting high every season, more and more high valued, right? But it was crazy because we were more and more overextending ourselves, right? Like to, to, to go from that sort of role playing, make believe to the real, that space, takes a tremendous amount of um cash because it you, you know and especially at that time we go back to there was no e-commerce okay so distribution was as good as what was uh, you know i t- I, c- I talk about the ocean county mall that that might as well have been the internet right that might have might as well have been hype beast because it was because there was no hype beast. right mm-hmm. that was the point of distribution that was the so macy's or- for me was that and the, the, the mechanics of landing a brand at that scale, and I was just naive and stupid. Like in retrospect, I should have been more patient. Okay, I could have been more patient, more patient now. Um, I don't regret it, but that sort of leaping from, uh, um, you know, RPG role playing to real, right? And going from being meaningful to the buy side takes a tremendous amount of capital and capital risk to fill those inventory pipes. You're filling shelves, right? You have to fill shelves. You have to be able to replenish all that stuff. So it's an interesting thing to sort of meditate on because now today there's so much direct to consumer, right? I was, gonna, I
1: was gonna say, you look at a brand like Kith and what Ronnie's right. done, yeah. it is sort of completely vertically integrated. Yeah. And it's a much simpler, higher margin operation yeah. than what, was even a you know i mean it was simply not available to a brand like Echo yeah. in 1997. and also the
0: the level of collaborations weren't at the fever pitch that when Ronnie who's a very gifted uh, um, merchant the distribution of the sort of the the sort of um, asymmetric marketing of hitching your wagon to someone else's star that was not the flavor you know of like there were signals of it, but not at a level of scale. Right? If scale was important, you could do it, and you could do like a collabo, or but it was not like a scale thing until really e-commerce blew the the, the doors I, was gonna say, I mean,
1: you guys dabbled in it, you know. With I remember with X Men T-shirts. And oh yeah, Marvel, you know, with,
0: with Playboy, IP. all sorts of stuff. We did all sorts of collabos, but. It, it it almost came uh, and that was like a very ad hoc thing. I don't know that we called it collaborations. Um, we had like the Blue Rhino collection, and I would, you know, I was licensing everything from, you know, Von Bodie Cheech Wizard to uh, Star Wars to Marvel to all sorts of really fun stuff. And I go back and look at some of that stuff. It was really, it was fun. It was fun.
1: Okay, I'm and curious. we became
0: a distribution channel for them, right? Yes. Cause that the, the aesthetic vernacular of those brands, that was a stretch for them out of their comfort zone. They didn't do things that looked like out of their style guides were so constrained on like, what is Hasbro doing? What is Kenner doing? What is, you know, McDonald's doing, you know, like, so we took those brands um, and I didn't do it alone. There were other, my peers that we, we brought it, but it spoke to that convergence, right? It spoke to that, like these things can enter these things can interrelate you know to 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 my
1: question though about sort of like these moments where you are borrowing from one to f- pay the other, yeah, I know that you guys have to do some fairly extraordinary and somewhat ethically dubious things in order to you know make payments be delayed or yes. you know borrow credit cards from employees and stuff like that. yeah, tell me a little bit about you know what is what was it like both you know in the conversations with you and seth about how you're going to keep mm-hmm. this thing yeah on the treadmill and also how are you feeling
0: inside oh it's brutal yeah i mean it's not it, it, could, it makes for a funny anecdote you know in uh in a you know in a in a sort of midlife crisis book you know about you know putting your spit on your thumb and, rubbing over the barcode of the check, which conveniently obscures the numbers so that when the check gets run and processed at the, at the bank, it's gonna, it's gonna slow the, 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 the payments down by a few days because it had to be manually done. Now, today, I don't think that's the case anymore with direct-to-digital uh, depositing, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, we would do things like that, and we were upside down. That was the, the i the the crazy dichotomy of this and this sort of like um this was a this was a this was a voyage of tremendous um, uh, self sacrifice, uh, mental health, uh, physical well being, um, uh, financial financial uh, sacrifice. Relational sacrifice ethical sacrifice a lot of things you do that like you look back on now I look back on with age and I'm like, I don't know that I would operate that way, you know, but Again, maybe the naiveness the role-playing it just was a you know, it's a survival thing, you know, but all of that being underwater you know having uh, The sales volume the explosive sort of perception right that the brand is in a great state, but then the reality That you're upside down, and I think I spent the majority of my career. It was a tremendous, like, humbling thing, right? So, and I say, like, perception is not reality. Even though every PR person I've ever met and every PR whisperer, like, will be like, "Oh, it's perception. It's gonna be a great look," and you know, like, no, no, it's a good look. Is sleeping good at night? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) uh, or as best as you can, because you're likely not to sleep well. Right, just with the normal woes of the world, and the normal statistical woes of the of the world and of life. Right, so whatever you self-induce, no, like reality is reality, and uh, you know. So I look back on on that, and I could say that between me and Seth, it was um, it was contentious, you know, uh, but it was always fair. I look at it, and it was like we were both learning. We were both each other's, uh, one another's, and for my sister Marcy, who was critical part of the equation, each other's university. We were the degrees we never got formally. You know, we were each other's educators. We were each other's um, assessors, right? Um, And I have very visual and vivid moments of, um, you know, I mean, Seth was important because, like, on one hand, I remember one trade show you asked about, like, this is a the interesting insight about um skate in relationship to hip hop in relationship to streetwear uh i remember we printed our first skate decks and we're at the action sports retailer show asr in san diego might have been in the new york one i can't remember where it was i want to say i can't remember wherever it was okay and the booth was pretty cool and i was really proud of these skate decks and i had people skating for us right like I don't know, we had a, why not? People, kids were coming into my warehouse, my good friends, some people are still like family to me that I grew up with that, like Mark, we should do a skate team. Mark, let's sponsor like a skate event. You know, my good um, friend, uh, Eric Monroe, the photographer, mm-hmm. used to do like a skating event all throughout Jersey. I would sponsor it, it was cool, dope, this is ill. Or you know, like, but I remember being in that trade show and there's this kid that came up to, to me and was ready, wanted to fight me started to like really get like in my face. You're a fuck boy, fuck you, you poser. You don't even skate. Da da, da da you have no business making skate skate decks. And I remember Seth, the little ass Seth, I shouldn't say little ass, but you know, he he's, was a he was he he's, he's, he's little but he, he, he you do not he was brolic. Like he you know he was a wrestler, right? I remember him getting in between us and man he just da 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 like made that kid back down. So like there's a tremendous love I have for him, even though the the relationship, the professional relationship, was not without its its fits and its starts and differences. And but it was it was brotherly, and I've and to this day I've I've stayed in touch with him. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I I've uh, I I love and respect him, um, and he was an important part of my story and my journey. But we had we weren't without our moments and I as uh, to your point in terms of he taught me to be to be, like if there was no Seth I might not have become it might not have built the endurance and the uh um the sense of the of of what my capacity was right he pushed and stretched me in a way that no educator in my life ever did. No other professional experience really ever did. So I I, I value it deeply.
1: To to that point, I know around that time, you guys did a deal to take on some capital that was a huge risk. You gambled on yourself and it put you you and your ownership of the brand in a very precarious state. And I guess, what was the conversation that you two had, or the three of you with Marcy, um, reconciling how that was gonna work, and what was the game plan to get to the end of that, maintaining ownership of, of the company?
0: Yeah, there are a couple of times in my career where y- you had I had to bet on myself, and contrary to popular opinion, like I never took on venture capital, never took on a private equity or hedge fund or anything like that, I didn't know about those things, frankly, I was naive to what, um uh equity financing was like giving a piece of the company to an investor uh we we never we had a board of directors uh uh, i think i maybe went to two board meetings they were the most board meetings happened over like a drink and you know in my office and like in the hallways or the elevator it was not it was a fairly ad hoc thing really up until my sale of the the company um my interest in the company but there were a couple moments of history where I needed to extend more credit and, and it just kept getting larger and larger and larger. Uh, there was one period where uh, I basically did a deal where with a manufacturing partner that would take on the inventory risk, right? Uh, and um, uh, we would take on all the marketing costs and they would take on the inventory risk um and we found out uh by a vendor one of our manufacturing partners um a guy named carl i won't say his last name but a guy named carl um who i remember faxed me i was like carl why is this coming in so expensive right and he I was like that that item should be cheaper and it was just me just negotiating like damn it like i want it cheaper because I'm not gonna. Because if you say okay, then I'm not gonna be allowed to do this. Was it because I was trying to make more margin? Mm-hmm. I just knew that like that item at a certain price point was no buyer was gonna buy it. Like I was not. It was not gonna be able to be marketable, right? So I remember him faxing in after that we'd signed up this this crazy production deal um, uh, that became very contentious and became our first sort of bout on the on the edge of bankruptcy, where he sends over the fax and. He mistakenly sends over a price, uh, which was the price that I understood it to be. And there's a separate price that's lower. And my agreement with the, the the manufacturing partners, one price, and we split it. Turns out he was getting paid on both sides, the, the manufacturing partner. So that became the rationale to sort of explode that deal. Here we are on a surge offense. The business is taking off, right? Mm. The items that we designed with them came out really good. There's some, like, some of the stuff that holds up the best even in, in terms of vintage, like the make, everything. Um, uh, but um, they're fucking us. They're fucking us. And this one agent who uh, felt bad that we were getting fucked and he kind of let us see both sides of the card. And that's when we pressed them on them. We found out from other vendors that that's what in fact was going on. And we ended up getting into like a crazy lawsuit and we almost ran the risk of either bankrupt the business and or give the IP over, right? Because we, it was one of the like, okay, you know, that's sort of going from role playing to, you know, uh, well, what can you give me if you can't give me your money? I could give you my time. i give you my future money, personal guarantee. I give you my IP. I don't know, that doesn't sound like, how expensive is that? Given over like the Rhino, my hardest working employee ever, mm. my most loyal comrade, you know? Like, what? Well, it seems like a, you know, I don't know, I'm mid-twenties, I don't know how hard it, it doesn't seem hard. Sure, yeah. You So yeah, you, you bet on it and then next thing you know, like you're you're at the one yard line, potentially losing it all. And that those experiences, it was, you know, it was crazy. People perceive the ride as like it was, um, just like, you know, a lot smoother than it was, but that became a repeating cycle, okay, which is, and you learn that macroeconomic things start to impact you, so where it came the hardest was when I bought, we, we um, Marcy wanted to, she didn't like the the risk portfolio we're taking on, okay, remember now, probably at this time could have went to private equity, could have went in venture to venture in retrospect, and Probably would've been smart to distribute the risk. Distribute the risk, distribute the upside. It was a different game with, with complex, right? Mm-hmm. Different, different offense that we ran. Just didn't have the knowledge to run that at, at Echo. It wasn't because of greed, it just was like, just an absence of knowledge, right? Just didn't know that was an option, right? Let's start a business, okay? Me, you, and her, okay, what do you get? I get 50, you get 50, you get 50. That adds mm-hmm. up. Everybody's fifty-fifty, right? Like so that that's how we were rolling, you know? Um so when uh we fast forward to maybe the, the the part of the business where it's becoming in most in its maturity, we start expanding into our own retail, which is a totally different ballgame. Yeah, this is again going back to building the the mousetrap, the apparatus. It, we I look back on it and it's like during the time I was like man it was so fucked up it was a house of cards but like actually we built something really good you know and durable like I look I'm really proud of like what we'd built and I think we had a hundred plus retail stores um, outlets and full-cost retail and uh, it it was a very elaborate mechanism we had multiple brands at that time, we were no longer just Echo Unlimited. We were doing G-Unit and Zoo York and Fetish and... Averex. Yeah, Avex, like a whole bunch of stuff, right? We were we were trialing stuff, and I was... Launch Cut and Sew, a brand with my own name on it, Mark Echo. And that was like a whole another period, but like, just... Go ahead.
1: No, I don't want to skip... No, no, I, no, no. I, but I have to ask you before we go too far down yeah, this yeah, rabbit yeah. hole.
0: So we've talked
1: a lot about the importance of identity and of brand. And, you know, fairly early on, but after you've really done a lot of the legwork to establish the brand, Mm -hmm. you get hit with a cease and desist around the name Echo.
0: Yeah.
1: um, And you're forced to change it. Mm -hmm. What did you, you know, how did you and Seth and Marcy think about that? And, you know, in retrospect, how do you feel about what that forced uh, you and the brand to do?
0: Oh, it's a good question. Um, first thing I thought was like, oh, fuck, I can't get a break. I just got over this hurdle with this shitty manufacturing deal where our inventory was basically locked up because of this dispute that almost bankrupted us. Now we finally have our own season, manufacture on our own. I'm kind of catching a rhythm, you know, and then you get a cease and desist. And so for me, it was uh, from... Uh, it was it was a a company called the um the echo design group echo very uh, a very uh long time predated my business very validly in retrospect um made a claim that echo was too close and edward c hyman ech the acronym echo uh that had long been making polo ties and Beautiful home furnishing and even though it was in the same business. I couldn't grok that in terms of the same classification They had a predated trademark on on our class of of goods so and it was real and uh, So that was just like I can't get a break You know, Uh, so we just shot the ad so now we have to like Photoshop everything out change it for manufacturing and I was so sort of stubbornly Attached to the name, the spelling, because it was personal, right? My mother gave me that nickname. It's my name. That's as much as Edward C. Hyman can make a claim on ECHO, I can make a claim on, on ECHO. My mother gave me that name. I wasn't even thinking of you. So I stubbornly take that kind of position and. Seth is like, okay, okay, calm down. This is me, the emotional artist, and the, the, the craziness he had to deal with me, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the sort of irrational logic. Because I was okay to change it to ECKO for the packaging, the branding, but it was going to be Echo by Mark Echo, <laughs> ECHO. And I tried that for about a year, and after that became more and more confusing to people. They're like, wait, which one is it? And I'm like, I'm making people adapt to the idiosyncrasy of my own sort of nostalgia for backstory and my claim on this, this personal righteous claim, right? Uh, Rather than the effective thing, which was like, well, no, it's ECKO, change your name too. And then that will help bolster the strength of the IP. You
1: legally changed your name? I
0: legally changed my name, yeah. I legally go through the exercise of changing my name. And
1: that allowed you to own that sort of in perpetuity as well?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, the it it allowed me to um, uh, bolster the strength of the ECKO mark. Okay. Okay. And it also, funny enough, in retrospect, like the things that are your struggles can be your strengths. And in this case, that that struggle, which at the time felt like persecution or something that was unjustly put on me um was actually an exercise in good hygiene exercise in better differentiating the brand right mm-hmm. uh because the unique spelling make getting the urls easier <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> right so but uh um and i think i learned i learned the 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 respect of like the art of you know come we hit on this beat before of like there is a level of art and craft in doing business, right? Mm-hmm. Like Andy Warhol kind of famously quotes, like, the best art is business and making money. And, you know, uh, it, it sounds very gross to say that, and people poke at that, but he was earnestly saying, like, what's interesting is how people actually orchestrate the complexities of a business to do things and create new models and expand in ways that you, you didn't contemplate. So. That taught me about the importance of infrastructure and that design and my ideas weren't enough. You're not alone in this, right? There's other people lifting this burden. And and that was a big lesson of uh, humility and also trademark law. So
1: as ECHO starts to reach, perhaps not its zenith, but it has uh, reached some ubiquity in the marketplace um, in Around the turn of the century, yeah, um, you become very interested in two pursuits outside of just apparel: um, video games, yeah, and publishing. And with both, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that you stepped into them with a very meditated crawl, walk, run mm-hmm. approach. Yeah. You didn't just immediately start publishing a magazine. You started with hang tags, mm-hmm. and with video games, you know, you started mm-hmm. with the EA, mm-hmm. Madden. Did. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, you know, how did you sort of like think about that strategy? And did you have an idea of sort of what that runway was gonna look like as you built these new businesses?
0: I didn't. Some of the, when you tactically, like Sansa, like when you tactically take an inventory of the landscape and the, the territory, you only have but the situational awareness of what you could see in front of you, the maybe the horizon line you take into the condition of the weather right um uh the climate those locusts that sort of center on where you are, and I think a lot of the parameters that built constraints on my approach were because I was mostly busy with the other business, so what looks like a meditative thing <laughs> was um. Actually an extracurricular thing like a side hustle that most people around me especially on the finance side Although to Seth and Marcy's credit never them um, Thought was like a dalliance and a distraction so there was an a forcing mechanism of gating because of my you know We just had gotten through some pretty heavy risks. You just had learned through the bad production deal trademark Exchange you gotta be calculated. So I think that was a forcing mechanism, Um, but it came out of, okay, the role-playing. It was just RPG, you know, like, all right, I I want to build a fashion house. So when I would show up at Details Magazine or GQ and they'd bring the, the publisher, they rarely brought the editor right they rarely Mm bring and when they did the editor was kind of like okay i'm here for like the the meeting for like the ads like hopefully get the ads and i'll be like well are you going to place my product in the editorial and it was always kind of a struggle right and it wasn't alone it wasn't unique to me right meaning echo unlimited it wasn't like a vengeful thing but generally the cohort of that my peers you know uh fat farm triple five um eventually Sean, John, Rockaware, all these guys, like they kinda, like the traditional fashion media kinda rolled their eyes at us. They thought we were corny. They thought it was just a a trend. They thought it was actually ugly, you know? And uh, urban apparel was like code for, that's like stuff that like black people or poor people wear, right? Or like white trash or something, you know? So there was this sort of classism thing that I was encountered with when I would go place my media buying that informed my sort of revenge fantasy to say, "Well, fuck them! I'm going to create my own magazine, and we're going to we're going to show we're going to, I I I'm going to we we're going to build the template right of what um, how this cohort this sort of this band of misfits sees themselves, because we see ourselves as beautiful, and we see ourselves as creative, and we see ourselves as luxurious, right? And we see ourselves as daring and interesting. And if they're not gonna say that we are, we're gonna say that we are. And so that was just sort of my thing. I looked at the dollar, it was a very, actually, one of the simpler uh, business bets because I already had the mechanism of an ad, cam- an advertising and marketing budget that was something like ten or eight percent of my total budget. So now that you know you're north of a hundred million dollars, it's not a little bit of money that you're you're spending on advertising. Okay, and this is cash generated in the business. This was this was the you know that eight, ten, twelve million dollars a year mm-hmm. was a material amount of money, and even that felt like being slightly indulgent. So I said, hey, Seth, why don't we create a, a, a company called Show Improve, that was like a separate LLC, and we're gonna take a quarter or a third of this budget and we're gonna conscientiously be more value-driven on our, on our media buying, but we're gonna invest in ourselves in, in these, other, these other spaces. And the first one was, was Climate, right, which was like what the magazine was gonna be called. And then we couldn't get the name, they mark, don't have another ECHO moment. Don't be stubborn. No, it's climate. It's climate. I mocked it up. I had mock-ups. It's climate. No, no, no it's not. The lawyers are like, it's, and, and I was, we were using .coms were booming. So we. I would write, and you could even, like, I, I see people send me pictures of uh, echo.complex. That was like, oh, that's so, like, 2000, you know? Mm-hmm. It's so, like, late 90s to, like, be, like, .complex, you know, and then, We were um, in South River, New Jersey, where my offices were, the creative offices. uh, One of my colleagues would would refer to the building as a complex. And we would, like, geek out on that as, like, oh, this is, like, the the Mind Labs creative complex. Like, we would just nerd out on that's who we are, you know, It's like, an identity thing. That was our way to try to make South River sexy. For people <laughs> that were commuting from Brooklyn, which did not last that long. Four-year run, good years, really good years. And then we ended up in, the, in New York eventually.
1: Okay, and you start the iterative process that ends up with Complex, and at the same time, you start filling with a video game that would yeah. ultimately end up being Getting Up, which yeah. sells nearly a million units yeah. when it's yeah. released. I mean, I think that from a marketing standpoint, the connective tissue between that and Echo is... Fairly clear, but I'm curious. Why is there only one getting up?
0: Oh, Why is there only one because they're really hard to make Um, now? Well, first of all, um, I think one of the 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 one of the funner professional Experiences and sort of like for those that really know me and work with me they know my sort of fascination of like new technologies and and like my and I think the, the, the color separation story is something like that's not a one off that that's something that I don't know just um, I, uh, I I'm a big believer in new mediums and trying to d- jump into the deep end at, uh, uh, on technology and so when gaming became this sort of uh, pastime right became like a cultural uh, phenomenon I was there as a consumer of it as an avid fan of the space so much so that i would want to market to that audience so i'd be buying again advertising against like pc gamer magazine you know whatever the different gamer magazines were There were a whole host of them playstation magazine i wanted my ads to be in playstation magazine i wanted them to be in gq right i wanted them to be in details right i wanted it to be in the source i didn't don't tell me where it can and cannot be that brought me to e3 okay and the the video game trade shows which brought me on the floor walking those trade shows. and like, I know trade shows, I, I, like I know trade shows. Okay, <laughs> like, that's a big part of my story. So I felt really cozy there and I would just like bum rush those trade shows. Like I would bum rush Jeff Tweedy at, at Spike's joint, you know, and get to whoever was the most in charge. And I'd end up at sometimes with someone who had a title that said CMO and chief marketing officer seemed to have some juice there. And I just had the good fortune at uh, Electronic Arts that um, one of the more senior executives, a guy named Glenn Chin, who became a a great uh, friend and he admired the brand earnestly. And I admired his brand. And he was daring and he started doing, he really brought that whole like collaboration into in-game placement. And I was the beneficiary of being there Early, that was a luck and you guys too. had the
1: the all echo team they right? had like an
0: all echo team in madden i forget even the year it was but it was fucking awesome
1: we had man. like be real and noriega and uh,
0: all the DeLa. yeah rest in peace dave and um jamie fox and marlon wayans and jason muse kevin smith no, was, I mean, <laughs> as
1: a kid that was a bit that was a huge deal and also a huge i remember i remember
0: i was with fat joe uh, who I, I love and respect, because c- he, he just doesn't seem to age, and his energy just. <laughs> but he was um, he was a big supporter of the brand, and he he he's he, he's someone who uh, was in a lot of our advertising campaigns, and but I remember him saying to me, "Yo, Echo, you went platinum with the Madden shit. You know that, right? What? No, 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 you you don't you don't get it like that. Like you yeah, gotta know, like you just went like that's a platinum record." You know and I, oh i never had anyone say that to me like that i guess i guess oh yeah that was that was a big that was a big no you could barely find the artifact of it today unless you have the old the game but it was like a part of the lord it
1: was also it, i mean i think and to Joe's point it was a huge moment not only for you and your brand mm-hmm. but for the entire culture because video games existed on this mass scale that mm-hmm. was honestly different than you know Anything in in real hip-hop music not maybe hammer or vanilla. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. but real hip-hop to have Fat Joe and you know Nori and and be real and these guys in a video game that every kid across the country Mm -hmm. could buy that was a total inflection moment and and a validation of everything that all of us were interested in at the time Yeah, man, Um, and I say that as like a you know late uh I guess that was early college or late late high school. When yeah, that happened. yeah, yeah. But it was like, holy shit! This video game has rappers in it.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy, and it, I think that was a part of that sort of pioneering journey. That um, you know, that was a part of that uh, that window in the culture when you were, you know, I was just young and ambitious and you don't necessarily know you you don't say well i'm pioneering but like you you're you're effectively a part of a a cohort that is in fact doing things for the first time and that was a very special place to be and and i'm proud of i'm proud that the echo brand um uh did a lot of firsts
1: from from there you then go to making your own game yes and getting up where where you play a graffiti writer yeah and you gamified yeah you know the competitive sport of graffiti yes um to nearly a million yeah unit sales which yeah. is pretty remarkable yeah it's crazy you know what was that process like um and you know I'm um, yeah and and what was it like ultimately to have this game in stores with your well, name
0: it was that was a unique moment for me because that was a moment a little bit of of uh coming out from behind the Rhino. I had for the, that up until those years, I'd say, until, I'd say like in 1999 to 2000, I started to more conscientiously be ready to market myself as a, um, we renamed the company Mark Echo Enterprises. And uh, it was really my colleagues saying was, oh, you're like, you're too quiet, you're too, Reserved like you should be out there like, you know uh, And I remember Seth it, to his credit uh, and Rafi Rafi was in marketing and um, Coltrane and and Matt Fontana all these guys uh Coltrane Curtis who's a, a very very important part about my history um, Who's now runs his own agency at Epiphany? Um, that these guys were like y- you're you need to put yourself out there and like, they would they, did, they purposely took the rhino and they shot a video and they just took it on like a printed board, right? And then they took the polo horse and they took whatever other brands. And they just, they went did a, a, a cold polling on the streets of Los Angeles and on the streets of Manhattan. And they shot this video for an internal case making that people do not know who's behind the rhino. Right? They're like, I know that, I know that, right? But then they'd hold up the polo, horse. oh, that's Polo Ralph Lauren. And then they show a picture of Ralph Lauren or some random person. People mostly not know who Ralph was, his likeness. So I was making the case, like, it's a lot of burden. Like, this is a team thing. I don't want to do that. And then there was also this kind of, uh, I don't know, more of a, uh, I was growing up in my aesthetic. And I wanted to maybe elevate, I shouldn't even say elevate, but maybe have a, a tangential way to express the brand through maybe stuff that was more discreet without logos. and. Mm-hmm. All this other embellishment, and there was things were changing. The market was changing. There was cha- there was a preppiness happening, or um, you know, like the woven shirt thing was like a thing, and people were starting to clean up and you know aesthetically. So I felt like, oh, this time is right. I had done some fashion shows as, uh, uh, under the Echo Unlimited brand, and I I'd gotten to be on the board of the CFDA. of uh, uh, So I was one of the youngest. I think I was the youngest at the time designer to ever become a board member of the CFDA. Yes. So that, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, um, sounds pretty douchey. Like, oh, who's up with the youngest board? Sorry, if that comes off that way. Um, but uh, that was just like, a, again, it was all the- This all fit into sort of you. It was like this sort of like stretching. And so the gaming became a part of that. And I didn't want to be boxed in. And I felt like if Ralph was building a lifestyle brand and world building, which he has, and he's been the best at it. If he could do um, furniture, I could do video games. That was like my logic. Okay. If Ralph could do tufted leather couches, I could do video games. You know, that was my, that was, and that's what I would cool. say to people in the gaming industry. And they'd look at me like, you just want a license? And, and they didn't want that. So I was like, oh, they need more. They need an idea. I'm gonna show them I could I could world build. So for years I obsessed you know, when we barely had money to pay the bills. And you talked about wanting
1: to do things that Ralph had not been able to do. And one of those is to create a magazine successfully. So you launched the magazine with um, its original team. Yes. And fairly shortly thereafter, you end up pivoting and Mm -hmm. adding Rich Antonello and myself, two people who, you know, both of us came into it with a bit of a pedigree, but. Rich was coming from the Nat Geo adventure right. world, and I was coming from the hip hop world. But I was a child at the time, mm-hmm. twenty-five. What gave you guys the confidence to put this part of your business in the hands of us?
0: I think it was. Um, it was the, also Sansa. Landscape, the territory, the turf, the conditions. We were moving all the business into New York. Right, that was an exciting sort of re-energizing moment for Complex. Complex was its brand identity from a sort of brand ID, high concept buyer's guide was strong. But the you know, we were we were trail testing that from long distance from South River. So that that move to New York was a really foundational sort of move for us uh and when we were signing up for all those things that i say woe is me and i'm hand-wringing about like the debt and the personal at the same time there's like the excitement and the uh exuberance of new and i think um i think it was the conditions of the the space we were occupying right literally and figuratively um and then yes you guys came from you know rich came from that geo but he was a a new york kid from brooklyn that like grew so, up with hip-hop right so there was a it was just like the bluetooth was sinking you know and and um you know i wanted to, i was making a video game you guys were building complex um uh it just it was it was super exciting you and, also
1: at that point are really diversifying the por- portfolio you oh have yeah echo red you have g-unit you have avarex yeah um zoo York. yeah you know that was a, it was a tremendous en- energy you know to join that i think rich came probably two years before i so yeah. he was in the old 38th street office yeah. but i only knew the 23rd street office right. and to walk into that building with six floors filled with hundreds and hundreds of people
0: yeah it was exciting
1: i'm i'm curious for you you know you go from essentially, you know, being in the driver's seat, driving stick, to now you are sort of in the way back of a limo. Yeah. What was that like
0: emotionally? It was hard. Was it gratifying still? Different kind of gratifying, probably the least professionally gratifying period, because you realize that, like, you don't have all the controls. Which is a necessary reality, like, even when you do have the controls, you don't have all the controls, right? There's that sort of an illusion, right? Um, Other factors uh, um, that get in the way of life and business, macro conditions, um, competitive circumstances, supply side, whatever they may be, personal, interpersonal, human choreography, right? So, but that was the first time in my career where I had to sort of, um, I was being tasked to sort of put myself out there at once, but the level of depth of my touch was becoming increasingly lighter, All right? So there was a dissonance there, right, as a creator. It felt there were moments of a, of, um, of a, a mile wide and an inch deep, just because, you know, how do you fill up the day, right? Like mm-hmm. your day, just you were just doing so much that you couldn't possibly have the level of depth. And then, so that sense of like being generative and a feeling, a sense of more deeper contribution into the equation, there was a dullness during that period. There were a couple of years of a dullness. And then to make up for that dullness, I would go create other projects. I'd I gotten to like uh, create a little art factory, a little art mm-hmm. studio, which was like really like a, like looking back at that, I was like definitely, <laughs> That was probably a breakdown of some sort I don't know that I was ever professionally diagnosed but um, there were some psychoactive drugs a part of that period that were helping me normalize my my myself I think the highs of uh, of uh, of the soaring and then the reality of the sort of distributed risk distributed decision making some consensus making peace with being on creating um, intentionally, sometimes, sometimes unintentionally, some level of bureaucracy, understanding how bureaucracy, the mechanics of that, to both be a good thing and a negative thing. It was a a deep learning period, dude. Like I couldn't, it was a lot to take in.
1: I was gonna say, it also felt like from within the building, things went from the pinnacle you know from my first christmas party kanye comes out yeah. and announces that he's going to do pastel right. through Complex. i mean right. through echo, echo right. and from there to the g unit offices is getting emptied out on a saturday afternoon felt like relatively overnight yeah and so i am curious first of all why did the pastel echo deal never happen That's been, i need I don't that know for, you'd
0: have to ask you'd have to ask him um, but i'm happy that it didn't for him and for for us. Um, I think he was he was really to his credit at that period he was like in deep learner mode, you know so he was just out there trying to figure out what what he needed to learn to build whatever infrastructure apparatus he was going to eventually need.
1: What exactly happened in that two thousand seven to two thousand eight uh, nine period? that the business jumped off the rails.
0: Oh, there were so many things that happened. I think, I, I, I think there were um, uh, there were a lot of things. I, I don't think you can attribute, attribute it to any one thing. I'd say that the most catalytic thing was the uh, um, financial markets crashing. If you remember, that was when we—I was spinning Complex off and starting to bring in investors because Complex mm. at the time was wholly owned by just you know uh, me and and Seth. Uh, so that's when we reconfigured the business there, and we were landing the plane on what the future of Echo was going to be. You signed leases in 2005, 2006, and the 2007-8 financial crisis where the banks are going upside down. If you remember. You know, uh, this was when um, there was the big bailouts and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the... the, Lehman and all that. So suddenly where the bank meetings were like an easy thing. I was in advertisements for CIT, like a bank group, right? Mm -hmm. Like they'd put me in their ads, you know, as like a success story. Next thing I know, I'm like the most hated person at CIT, you know? So, you know, having confrontational meetings, just feeling the, you know... The weight of what personal guarantee means when you're effectively upside down, right? It's just it's basic math, right? You had, you had more inventory, both of people, of product, and leases than you do market demand. Market demand is being affected by macro conditions. Some of them, most of them, I think, were macro, but some self-inflicted. So the cost of doing this and that and the sort of maybe um you know what seems like we could sit here and like hold a trophy you know of like oh complex and getting up there were also you know risk reward mm-hmm. eye on the ball right eye on the prize so there's some interoperative things in the organization where i think that there were philosophical differences that started to show up some of those things of sort of adult sort of professional divorce you know people go through that they experience that sort of uh, um you know with their career you have this idyllic perspective of what it was and especially me and Seth we nurtured our or we came up as teenagers effectively into this thing. We were babies. So going into adulthood and sort of that sort of like there was a very emotionally heavy business mm-hmm. in a in probably a very dysfunctional, maladaptive way that if me and you were starting something today, we'd just be so much more, be much more, we wouldn't have the weight of that, those adole- those basically it's all adolescent bo- years. loaded.
1: In- yeah,
0: so it was a very loaded thing. So there are breaches of all sorts. Um, you know, I remember distinctly feeling the weight of that, also feeling just frankly tired. It does happen, you do, burnout's a real fucking thing.
1: Well, you guys were 18 years into the business or so at that point?
0: Non-stop, right? It was nonstop, and And uh, tired from the travel, tired from the expectations, tired from, you know, explaining to the bankers why complex made sense and why getting up made sense. And, you know, I, I felt people trying to encroach on my creative uh, ambition. And it was my creative ambition that got us to the place of success and here we were. And suddenly I also took an inventory of the market, like from a market condition. Cause you know, it wasn't like the financial markets, the macro things weren't having an impact on everyone, including Nike and, and Polo and all of everyone else that was at the department store. Macy's themselves were all suffering. Everything was down, but man, urban was really down mm. and it just felt like, you know, Uh, I really felt the, uh, the, the dynamics of, um, uh, the distribution channels and their sort of lack, like that, that sort of doubt and that sort of lack of reverence for how serious we were as a category. We were the easiest young men's in the history of sportswear and like the younger, the younger demo. Is the one that um, mm. the retailers tend to be the most disposable with. They will just churn and burn. If it was the surf industry, and then it was later us in, in streetwear and urban, they just churned and burned us. They're like like just because they're not like they weren't going to get rid of all the public companies that were funding, mm. paying basically rent because no one was winning. But we in you know in terms of resources they were convinced that we were bringing them down and they started just boxing out and slowly reducing the relevance of pretty much everyone in the genre.
1: So as as this dust started to settle on your core business, how did you and Seth extricate yourself and sort of settle affairs?
0: I don't know that we did. It was very slow and sloppy and (laughs) messy with lots of yelling and crying and um mean things said and um uh and lawyers and uh it was a mess it was a shit show like extricate fuck, it was actually it was like it was like some dismemberment you know what i mean it was a lot of blood
1: but you ended up selling the business yes, to, yes and this yes. was to get yourselves off of out of the hook of this de- well, well basically what,
0: what we did is um the it, it, like the mechanics of it uh were uh we would seth would partner with a company called iconics that was a publicly held company they were buying me out of my position trading my interest into a perpetual royalty um and i would take complex uh and we'd buy seth out and we would land the plane like that so i was betting on that and Seth was still very confident, and to his credit, um, he still had a go of it for as long as he could, but he kind of never recovered from just the, the the you know, how underwater the, the business was at the time. But the, you know, the brand went on to, it's still to this day is, you, you know, it's owned by, uh, it's now a private company, um, but um, we're on our 30th anniversary. You yeah, know, I'm working on a little, like, capsule for it it's good it's fun you know like i i i still love the brand it's an important part of my history you know i'm not ashamed of it Mm -hmm. i think it is still i travel the world i still see it i still see people wearing it um and when it comes to like you know a a gratifying fruitful generative sensation right for whatever reason i still kind of get it out designing a t-shirt so you're never too old to design a t-shirt i guess so you know uh it's still around and um you know uh we we ended up landing the plane but it was quite messy it's quite messy
1: you in that divorce end up taking complex yeah which at the time was profitable but doing fairly modest revenue mm-hmm. and I, I would say i think we both agree largely on the strength of Riches innovation around mm-hmm. the complex network yes. as, as a vertical ad network, um, we were able to scale the business out of the recession quite against all odds. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess I'm, I'm curious sort of in those moments uh, of separation when you were looking at complex, did you have any idea that it could be what it would eventually become?
0: yeah I did I did Um, and uh, and I still even even being away from the business in any sort of operational way I still look at my babies and my businesses my my um, the problems that these platforms are trying to solve as relevant and pertinent and there's always a path to towards the problem solving so I still remain sort of uh, uh, maybe naively optimistic about all of them, right, all the things I've ever endeavored. Just when in game theory, we sit around like, well, what could it do? Would we do it different? How would we do it? I, I always have energy for that. Um, but I did, I did think that it was, um, uh, that it was gonna be, that it was, that it was relevant. And I felt and I saw and I understood the power and the might of uh the audience, and that there was an unmet need right uh, in it, it, from a demographic point of view from a just overall um content perspective uh so yeah i well to, to the point
1: of your belief in that audience i think one one of the most important and consequential things that you brought to the table at Complex, yeah, you know, was while we were building this digital audience, mm-hmm. that was real, but it was numbers on a screen. This inspired you to have the idea to birth ComplexCon, yeah, and this was a controversial idea within the audience within the office. This was scrutinized, yes, um, and I <laughs> can admit. My- you know, to being skeptical myself. Yeah, sure. Um, it seemed very scary.
0: Yeah, it was scary.
1: Tell me, you know, how did that idea come to you? You
0: were also a collaborator. You, you also, you, you, you helped. You, you were, you had your, you were scared, and people were scared for good reason because they're, you know, um, it's not like I hadn't taken some swings and misses in my career, and I think that always sort of lingered for me. Is that? Uh, as much as Mark uh, could hit it out of the park, he could also, you know, he he could put a lot at risk in his sort of blind crusader-like pursuit of uh, an entrepreneurial endeavor. And I think it's funny, you you start to, I don't know all the archetypes of entrepreneurs, but I definitely went through a part of my career where I was like more crusader than let's say driver, where Rich was more of a driver, right? Um, Or, I played later parts of my career. I think now I'm more of a, a team builder, I'm more of a team person. So I think, um, you know, it's scary when someone gets into that kind of, that, you know, that mode that they're seeing something and then other people have other interests. And, you know, we had investors, we had a board, it was more complicated. So it was all, it all had merit, the fear. um, You know, but I also remember you uh me and you sitting around brainstorming thinking about the choreography of getting all the right stakeholders on board this is a much well lived and learned lesson from the echo days of not distributing the the Mm -hmm. the the the, the risk and getting the right stakeholders all technically distributed from a contract level through to really creatively business-wise on board I was convinced to, to engage with Takashi because I had a good rapport with him over a year of back and forth. Let's do something, let's do something, let's do something. And then you were like, let's go visit Pharrell. That's right. And we went on the back lot of The Voice, and Mimi So very uh, generously brought us into CP and we pitched Complex Con. Yes. Um, so like it is a, it is a, it is a, we went from, I went from me to we, you know, and it sounds, that sounds corny, that sounds idealistic, that sounds like, but man, that's a, that's a, when the shit's at its best. So like, I just kind of had that confidence for gut, despite the sort of inertia of people not wanting to either do more, stretch themselves, envision a new means of, like market making. Market making scary, right? That's what, that's what I've been my whole career is like, I, I make, I help validate markets, right? I try to make marketplaces organized where they don't necessarily exist. I see the, the, the seeds of, uh, of, um, pattern. Right. Oh. And I try to try to help organize the pattern. And, and so you see that flock and you just see, you see, uh, oh, it's a flock.
1: To that point And also to, to the sort of your larger, uh, commitment to emergent technology that we've yeah. talked about several times yeah. in this conversation. I don't know if you remember this, but yeah. after we meet Pharrell, mm-hmm. he says he's into it. You and I are headed to dinner mm-hmm. to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And I look at you fucking with your phone and I ask you if you're day trading because I can just sort of like peek over your... <laughs> and you're like, no, I'm buying crypto. And this is the spring of 2016. Right, right. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> and you explained to me web three yeah and before they were calling it web three i thank you very much for that yeah because i promptly went home and uh downloaded coinbase and bought some bitcoin at eight (laughs) hundred dollars right a bitcoin um but i am curious how did web3 come onto your radar Mm -hmm. and what what was your fascination then and what do you think about web3 as we move forward
0: well i've um I just, uh, I, I, I'm just restless about wanting to, to, um, about systems redesign, you know, like I'm, I think rather than sort of wring my hands and complain o- about the way things are, I believe there's a path to towards solving a lot of our biggest issues just by like making new solutions that are better. So, If it was cracking channels, alpha channels in Photoshop and learning how to do color separation, or if it's saying there's gotta be a better way coming out of that financial crisis, because during that financial crisis, when I'm on the balls of my ass, okay, like with a lot of public shame, right? Feeling really bad about myself, selling my namesake, right? Um, My friend, and partner at the t- at the time introduces me to this 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 crazy uh, article about a guy named Satoshi Nak- Nakamoto, and it was all reaction to the banking crisis. So I got turned on to Bitcoin and you know cryptographically designed stores of value, right? Um, because of the predicament I was in because I was getting so royally screwed by my banks.
1: Almost at exactly the same time that we are flying to LA to meet with Pharrell to figure out Mm -hmm. ComplexCon 1, Rich is concurrently negotiating the sale of Complex to Verizon and Hearst. Yeah. And that ends up going through- In the
0: same, roughly the same window, yeah. Roughly, I mean- We were kind of in growth, we were in like a persistent, persistent um, state of, of trying to increase our balance sheet to just go bigger. So and from the Iconics investment to the first Hearst investment, to like the momentum in the field was, it was, it seemed like that what we're talking about, like a whirlwind of like some years there. It was like a three years, and it felt no. like it never was done.
1: And it felt like the window was closing.
0: Right, there were macro things happening, right?
1: And I have to ask, you know, the deal gets, gets done. We all exit for $300-plus million, Mm -hmm. reportedly, according Mm -hmm. to the Wall Street Journal. Um, And you've talked about the shame that you experienced at the end of Echo and Mm -hmm. having to deal with that going bust in a certain way. What was the sort of emotional payoff for you to then, six years later, put this tremendous W on the board?
0: Oh, it felt, it felt great. I think, um, I think the, the shame, I don't, I don't feel like Echo was the Echo business, how it landed, the plane landed, was uh, something to feel shame for. I think the, the shame inducing feelings have less to do about my ego or the pride of sort of, of, uh, ambition. And, and skill that maybe left, left unutilized as much as it was the disappointment with my friends and people I loved and my colleagues and sort of um, not feeling like I could have done better by the people that worked so hard for me. I think that was the hardest part. And the brand was still, like the, to the, at, the, at the consumer level, there was still, um, though not as feverish uh, in terms of the scale, there was still a, a very loyal customer so it wasn't like oh what well, was me about that as much it was as like as a person mm-hmm. to as a creative leader loyal to people that are sacrificing for me on my behalf and that it was a promises unfulfilled for them it was much more of an interpersonal thing
1: well, so I was going to say on the flip side, I mean, with complex, you did quite the opposite. And
0: that. so, yeah, that was gratifying. We could all win together. And it was a better distribution of risk and a better distribution of upside. And that um, in a culture that is driven on sort of radical independence, uh, um, which is, you know, the American way, Right, uh, there is something really powerful in the incredible feat of, of of getting humans to organize to do something together, and to do it against a plan. It's like one of the most gratifying things. Like I used to make fun of watching the you know, Bugs Bunny cartoon and like the orchestra episode. And I used to think, like, orchestras, like, oh, classical orchestral music was so corny. And I forget who was pl- playing the orchestra. Was it, who's playing, um, is it, like, Daffy, Elmer Daffy. Fudd or something? Or Daffy, Daffy, Daffy Duck. Daffy Duck. Right. And, and it, like, the, the, the tuxedo up, keeps yeah. spinning up on his face. And it's like, oh, I used to think that I was just, like, man, orchestras are cool. Now, you, you, if you actually analyze what's going on, I mean, as a metaphor, um, man, is it beautiful.
1: I'm curious, because... You know, with Echo, you remained basically a three way partnership throughout the entire thing. Yeah. With Complex, you and Seth invited Rich into the ownership Mm -hmm. early on. Mm -hmm. And then you and Rich invited myself and Matcha and several other Mm -hmm. key employees in. Was that move a reaction to how you felt things had played out in the first business?
0: No, I think, I think it was just maybe a reaction to better knowledge. It was like a, in as much that, okay, I had an expanded scope of understanding of how you could create value for people when you can't necessarily give them money, um, and that there was contrary to sort of my naive view of like 50-50-50, you know, like, like what it was at, at, you know, the Echo Days between me, Marcy and Seth, um, I think it was just like, just knowledge. And it was also, again, Sun It was like what the conditions, it was the right thing by the physical conditions, right? Of the, of the time, the space, the place, the business, the composition of the business It was just the right thing, but it wasn't like, Oh, I feel guilty. So therefore, you Mm. know, it was like, that's how you should do business. And, um, I, you know, I, I try to share those insights with my kids now and with people that I care about that are trying to launch things, you know, that maybe can't necessarily pay someone what they want, but they want to work with that person at certain skills and make them a partner. Well, people are really tempted to partner. Oh, is he worthy? And they start getting all self-righteous of why that person's not worthy. And they have hey, idiosyncrasies. You have idiosyncrasies, motherfucker. <laughs> you, you suck too, right? Like we all like none of us are perfect so how are you casting the team and like making the band effectively right and there is a certain intentionality of putting together that right balance of um alchemy you know of finding people with um non-duplicative but complementary skill sets being self-aware of what you're not as strong at but just because you're not as strong at it doesn't mean you're not you don't add value, you're not competent. It just means that you, know, you rely on a different uh, mechanism to make the machine go.
1: After complex sales, mm-hmm. um, both of us stick yeah. around for about a year and a half yeah, yeah, until yeah. the fall of yeah. 2017 and um, end up going our separate ways. Yeah. Um, you entered into, a, I mean, I went to an adjacent space at Def Jam, you went in a completely different direction, going to work at yeah. an NGO, XQ,
0: right,
1: and the Emerson Collective. What inspired you to go in that direction? And tell what do you what do you do for them?
0: So, contrary to what many people perceive or what they know of me, based on my Wikipedia, um, one of the many sort of domains of interest and. Pursuit for me has been philanthropy and specifically the educational space the high school space Uh, It's it's been since I started making my first my first real money Um, uh, So if it was my history of engaging with charity in crazy to say it now in this world but in Ukraine and with Odessa uh, With Tikva or if it was sweat equity education. I, I have Actually, a history being the space amongst oh, so ed reformers, the uh, the corporal punishment, uh, right initiative. Yeah, in- so the corporal punishment initiative, where I took on like physical paddling of students in schools, is how I ended up getting to meet the woman who was the the undersecretary of education in the office of civil rights, Russlan Ali. Russlan went on to become the CEO of XQ. So you know, people were like, how did you get to her? I knew Russell for years. She's one of my closest, you know, friends. It was like, we were out of each other's world after I did the corporal punishment thing, which was I took, I funded lawsuits against states that were allowing corporal punishment, physical restraint in schools. And I had some success. And when she was, you know, in Obama one administration, she was a strong ally Couldn't help me directly, but the the administration was writing guidance on these topics um, Health and Human Services. So I found myself in DC nerding out on this and like really leaning into it and became really Friendly with Ruslan and so I felt very lucky when she was launching XQ She asked me to join the board at the XQ Institute, which is um effectively a high school redesign initiative right it's a it's a redesign company. it's like oversimplification but we you know we, we launched with 20 or so uh, schools that are all informed by a, a certain set of design principles um, and we're really trying to make redesign open source and practical and available to districts and states and you know and contrary to popular opinion, like if you you, you, you know if you want to see something anew, you know, just because the system, you feel the weight of the system and you convince yourself that you can't, you actually can. And just believing that you can makes the difference. So like taking my professional experience of building market and uh, marketing, uh, I have felt that where I'm at now professionally at XQ, uh, helping oversee our our creative and some of our strategy and being active on, there and then being at Emerson Collective and running a, a group with great teammates, great colleagues um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a group that we call the Culture Council. Uh, being able to bring folks from outside of philanthropy to philanthropy has been one of the most professionally challenging and gratifying things I've ever done. And to sort of Realize I spent most of the my career about like myself my own sense of authorship my own like me 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 and like seeing the power of we and being Vulnerable to you know and curious to want to learn right like what better challenges to to take on than some of like the most encalcant you know challenges in the world, you know redesigning the Carnegie unit, you know if we could You know our time it's why I went to 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 join Rustlin and and very generously, like Loreen offered me to join, I was so eager because their their vision was clear. I hadn't met people in the space that so explicitly said, "All right, well, at the system level, at the unit level, how we measure seat time and the student credit hour, and all of like if you break that down, and we don't have time to do that here." And for those that are curious, they should go to, to, to look us up at, at, at xqinstitute.org. Um, but the, the system that was designed 100 plus years ago, very well intentioned by Andrew Carnegie, that framed the manner in which all of curriculum, time and space, how, how we procure curriculum, how teachers teach, how students learn, the orientation of the, the chair in the classroom, the shape of the year, nine months, or whatever it is, a, you know, eight months, all was established over 100 plus years ago. So it was so cogent and clear to me to hear them say, well, we have to redesign that, that very unit. You know, I'm proud to say that through the years that we've been there, um, we're now in partnership with the Carnegie Foundation themselves, with them saying what we've been waving the flag on. So this is a very exciting time uh, professionally. It's maybe not as um, there, you know, it's 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 not as sort of a uh, much public fanfare, but I think it's as meaningful as as anything I've done.
1: You've built two businesses that have reached ubiquity. You've raised children to adulthood. Yep. You are working now working
0: on that. Working on that. Working on that. You're you're
1: now in the middle of your third act, giving back. Yeah. If you were to sit with a 21-year-old creative entrepreneur, what, and you had 45 seconds as we do in this moment to impart some wisdom on them, what would that be?
0: Uh, My goodness, what would I say? Um, 45 seconds? I'd just sit there quiet. Have an unnecessarily uncomfortable moment like this. Make them ponder on the ridiculousness of that question as if it could be stated in 45 seconds. I would say, um, I'd say a host of things. I would say, be curious. I, I used the, I didn't invent this. I don't know, there's some bumper sticker I saw somewhere, but don't let you, you know school get in the way of your education. You, know, you have to be a lifelong learner. And um, I would say, um, uh, know that you're not alone in every way, right? Uh, Especially when you think, and when you're confident and you're being, you think that you're right, even then you're not alone, you're just being righteous. Like be effective, be effective over being righteous, right? So your loneliness or that sense of alone, that sharedness, that self-confidence of like, this is the way, you know, doing collaborating is powerful, right? Working with the team, distributing the decision-making power, being a part of a a living being part of that orchestra that, that 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 thinking orchestra of of problem solving right um so surrender be effective stay hydrated with more than just water and more than just tequila probably a little bit of a mix of both proportionally more water okay uh and um I'd, yeah just tell them to love themselves you know and that uh um, that really, it's not that deep. Really, it's not. Like really, as much as we have, we have all this. Pr- you should see this, guys. These people don't. They don't see that sh- showed up here with nine cars and all sorts of shit in this whole production. But like, this is we're just one little we're one little story together. And it's just, it's, it's a really um, take that in. Keep perspective. You know. Thank you for your time. Thank you, sir.
1: And with that, I'd like to give a huge shout to Mark, both for laying the foundation of the company that changed my life, and for letting me talk his ear off for more than two hours. Mark contains multitudes, as they say. He's as humble as they come, and quick to point out, and even laugh at his own mistakes. But he's also one of the shrewdest people I know, and a visionary in the truest sense of the word. There was a fair amount of reminiscing in this episode, as you'd expect from a couple guys that were in the trenches together. But it's clear that Mark isn't interested in nostalgia, and I think that's a really instructive jewel, given his epic list of achievements. Our future is in front of us, and it's best to be oriented in that direction. And as for Mark's future, I'm truly excited to see what his next chapter brings. Thanks for tuning in to the Idea Generation podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and show your support by leaving us a rating, or better yet, a review, on your podcast platform of preference. It only takes a few seconds of your time, but it can make a world of difference in helping others to discover this show. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Noah Callahan Bever. And thanks to our partners at Tres Generaciones Tequila for making today's episode possible. Are you a creative? Do you want to support yourself as an entrepreneur too? Then you don't want to miss the latest episode of Idea Generation. This week, I, Noah Callahan-Bever, sit down with designer, entrepreneur, and philanthropist Mark Echo. From founding his namesake apparel line in the 90s, to helping birth the idea of convergence culture with Complex Magazine in the aughts and 2010s, to his current work in the education space, Mark's had a fascinatingly varied career, with blood, sweat, tears, near bankruptcies, and nine-figure acquisitions to prove it. Be sure to tune in wherever you get your podcasts.